Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Welcome to The Crunch on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Cam Slater, and this is the place we crunch the political issues and cut through the politician's spin. We've got something a little different ahead of you for this week. My first guest this afternoon is Gary Moller. Yes, he's back. We touched briefly on stroke recovery in my last interview, and so he suggested he come back on the show to discuss this in more detail. Of course, I agreed, because I want to find out what else I can do to recover from my stroke. Then I'll be talking with award-winning Australian foreign correspondent and fellow Kaiviti, which means Fiji-born. Graham Davis, about what on earth is going on inside Fijian politics. He's a former insider in the Bainimarama government who then campaigned to oust them. But he's dissatisfied with the carry-on in Fiji, so this should be a very interesting discussion. We'll dip into the mailbag, of course, and I love this part of the show. Don't forget to send comments to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Gary Moller has been on the show before, and my comments about my stroke led him to wanting a more in-depth discussion on strokes, and how to prevent them, and how to fix the damage. He's the expert. I know only too well, though, what it all entails, so this is going to be very educational, especially for me. He joins me now. 
Gary Moller, welcome back to The Crunch. Now, um, you made the suggestion after my last interview that we uh, have a chat about uh, stroke prevention and recovery. And yeah, I thought that was a fantastic idea to get you back on the show about that because you know a lot about it um, from a technical and medical perspective, and I know a lot about it from personal experience. So, yeah, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it is a fascinating subject, and it's of increasing importance, uh, not just because we have an aging population, uh, but we have this um, so-called vaccine, uh, which is uh, undoubtedly causing a epidemic of stroke and similar health issues. So it's very timely, uh, very important that we do cover this. Yeah, and you know, when I had my stroke, I was forty-nine at the time, three days before mm. my fiftieth birthday. And uh, the first thing I did, um, you know, after I spent two days on my back um, trying to stay alive, mm. uh, was to start looking into how do you fix this, because I wasn't getting any answers from anybody, and those were the answers I really wanted, and. You know, I went to the Stroke Foundation website, and all it just made me despondent. It was it was kind of like they were telling me you're going to have a lifetime as a cripple, and I wasn't prepared to accept that. So I started doing my own research, which led me on a, a fascinating journey. But uh, you know, we just touched on that in my in my last interview with you, and um, you know, I think. Your idea, your suggestion to cover this in more depth and talk about some other techniques and things things that I experienced mm. might be really helpful to some of our listeners, and you know, particularly Mike from Foxton, who uh, after that last interview uh, shared with us his experience of a stroke. So let's just get into this. There's lots to cover. Well, as a, a little background first, um, I'm, mm. I'm not a medical person, uh, but I do have uh, training in uh, through the Otago Medical School in rehabilitation and yep. another postgraduate qualification in sports medicine. And uh, it was, in fact, in uh, 1976 that I first started working full-time in Dunedin Hospital uh, in the area of stroke rehabilitation. That's in the um, the, the physical um, recovery um, exercise and so on, which we'll touch on shortly. That uh, culminated in my receiving a scholarship to go to uh, Sweden to study Sweden sports medicine and rehabilitation programs uh, by way of um, a small grant from the Federation of Sports Medicine and a letter of introduction which opened um, many doors. In fact, it opened every door for me while I was over there. And it absolutely blew my mind and also confirmed to me the importance of uh, uh, physical rehabilitation for people who yep. have suffered stroke. Yep. Now, one of the points about stroke is that back in the 1970s, we didn't have these um, amazing clot-busting drugs and, and other medications or uh, methods of uh, suctioning out uh, a blood clot, um, thus uh, rapidly restoring mm. circulation. So... Back in those days, when somebody suffered a stroke, it uh, oh gosh, it was devastating. Yeah, and, I know all about uh, that. And, 
<laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, incredibly devastating. Whereas nowadays, a remarkable and very pleasing number of people do have what appears to be almost uh, full recovery. But back in those days, um, the damage was massive compared to what we typically get today. Now, However, I wasn't, I wasn't able to have those drugs, right? Because they couldn't tell. Well, yeah, they couldn't tell a... when I had the stroke. So, you know, it, yeah. it could have happened half an hour before I woke up. It could have happened hours before I woke So I wasn't yes. given any of those drugs. My recovery from the stroke was sheer will and determination and, <laughs> you know, physical yeah. activity and, you know, the care of two brilliant physiotherapists. Yes. Yes. So you've done incredibly well, Kim. Mm. And congratulations. Well, Good so on it, you. It, it's still improving. You know, that's the thing. I was told by the neurosurgeon, uh, in the hospital that I would never use my right arm again. Mm. And I said, never, never sounds like a long time. He said, uh, yeah, it means never. And he said that I might get some small improvements for about three months, and then that would be about it. Well, my um, right arm and hand has never stopped improving. It's just continued on and on and on. And I put that down to the fact that I... You know, I didn't wait for the state to fix me. You know, just to give you an example, you know, you studied uh, occupational therapy and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. It took nine weeks for an occupational therapist to visit. Nine weeks. I'd already been to physio every day for nine weeks, seven days a week. By the time the occupational therapist came around and gave me all these forms that was going to teach me how to deal with my life in a limited way, I'd already passed all of the all of the milestones that they were expecting to see at three months. And that's when I just said to them, look, you go and help somebody else. I'll, I'll look after myself. And I sent the, that was the last time I saw the occupational therapist. Um, so, you know, if you, and this is the thing that I caution people, Gary, I really do. If you are expecting the state to send somebody to help you after a stroke, you are sorely mistaken. And you are just letting yourself become a cripple. And it really is up to you. It's not up to anybody else to do that. And because what people don't realize, there's no help for stroke victims. There's no ACC. The only way you get ACC for the stroke is if it happened on a, on a, on a, as a result and can be directly attributed to an accident or a medical misadventure. Otherwise, you're on your own. And uh, it's a glaring hole that is in the ACC system. You know, they, they give out support for all sorts of injuries, but not for stroke. People with stroke victims are often like that for life because they've had no help. You've got to help yourself. Well, just, on, just on that, uh, Cam, just to get it out of the way, mm -hmm. if, yeah. uh, if a person has any kind of heart condition and is uh, not cautioned about the risks of suffering a blood clot, which could lead to a stroke. Mm. And they have the uh, mRNA jab for COVID. Yeah. And then consequently suffer a stroke. They can claim accident compensation. They'll probably so have to fight for it, though. They'll have to fight for it. And um, I'm in the process of just writing a article about how to file a claim for such injuries uh, with ACC. Um, and uh, uh, the reason I'm in, I'm in Wellington is because I, uh, when I finished that study tour of Sweden, 
I was then uh, recruited by ACC to set up their injury prevention and rehabilitation programs for sport and recreation injuries. Yeah. Um, so I had that founding job, which was absolutely amazing. So I do have some familiarity with ACC. Uh, unfortunately, ACC is no longer rehabilitation oriented. It is file closure oriented. Yeah. Um, but that aside, if you weren't given the right cautions about the risks of taking that vaccine and you suffer an injury, then you are eligible for ACC. But bear in mind that it is a bit of a tedious process because ACC will dispute your claim every step of the way unless it is really obvious. And it's unlikely that your doctor will support you because it is the poison chalice for their career mm. to suggest that uh, there may be a connection with the vaccine. Yes, yeah. if, if they indicate even the slightest doubt or promote the slightest hint of vaccine hesitancy, their careers as a doctor may be over. I mean, so you have to the, fight for your thing, own. Exactly, that's exactly what I was saying. You have to do it yourself. And don't yep. wait for you to get approval from ACC. If you have the means, and I yes. was lucky, right? I had the means to be able to fund it myself. I had private insurance and, you know, I, I'd suffered, the neurosurgeon signed a document, said I'd suffered catastrophic loss of a limb. So, you know, I had a payout from my private insurance and I also had income protection insurance. I ploughed all of that into my recovery 100%. Didn't spend it on anything else other than two physiotherapists and getting moving as soon as I could because you'll know from your background in occupational therapy, and I'll say it in simple terms, the more you move, the more you can move. Yes, um, uh, rehabilitation, not occupational therapy. However, I worked alongside occupational yeah. therapists um, yeah. as part of a team. Now, one of the things that has happened, Cam, uh, and I go right back to the 1970s, and in fact, I can go right back to 1972. Think of stroke as being cardiovascular. It's yeah. a cardiovascular yeah. um, accident. And uh, I first began uh, working with people with heart disease, cardiovascular disease in 1972. So it's, it's a long period of time. So there's a lot of experience there. And one of the things that has actually really dismayed me is that the physical rehabilitation for stroke is today, it's an embarrassment compared to what was provided in the hospitals in the 1970s. There have been a number of reasons. One of them is the improvements in medical procedures, which I'm not an expert in, but mm. uh, the clot-busting drugs and surgery. Those have, been, have certainly changed things. But what it's allowed the health system to do is to cut back on the physical rehabilitation services like the mat work, um, the yeah. you know the physio, physio and the occupational yeah. therapies, the hydrotherapy, all of the hydrotherapy pools and all of the uh, hospitals have, as far as I know, the whole lot have been closed now. And so that, that has been lost. That's so we've lost all of those. I mean, that's just well, what dreadful. It, yeah. 
Well, what it means, Sam, is that, yeah, it's it doesn't really matter for the majority of stroke patients, but there's that 10% who, and you can put yourself in that category of that 10%, who suffer a devastating injury. And they are the ones who who really do need every resource thrown at them and over a long period of time. See, it's interesting you call it a cardiovascular illness because that may be the cause of it, but but the actual effect of it is a brain injury. Yes. And in, and in my case, it was in the front cortex, left-hand side, two centimetres across. That's huge. That's large. Mm. Like like that. It literally, part of my brain died, mm. and that's what I learned when I started researching how do I fix this. And the two physiotherapists were really great. They said, "Look, Cam, it's going to require thousands and thousands of repetitions of very simple tasks and little tricks as well." You know, like using mirrors and stuff like that to trick your hand into thinking it's working and all of that to train the brain because that's what people forget. Like I've had, I can't remember the number of people over the last five years saying, "Oh, is it like a heart attack?" Well, it's nothing like a heart attack, right? Mm. It's a brain injury. It's a, it's a trauma to your brain. Part of your brain's it's like someone hit you with a hammer, and um, getting that through to people has been really difficult. And, you know, um, I, I talking with one physiotherapist, she said she never dealt with a stroke patient before and, and refused to, you know, point blank when asked to, to treat me. And it was my lawyer that said, no, 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 you need to treat him. And this is, and you can learn this and this will be great. And da, 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 da. And we went on from there. But Pilates and all of those things that were associated with that helped me get strength in the rest of my body, which helped the, the arm build up. But yeah, I think Hmm. it's really important. It is a brain injury. For the first two years, I had to have a a rest every afternoon, two or three hours, just exhausted doing simple things. (laughs) Yes. So so, um, yes, alongside uh, stroke patients, and uh, typically there were three causes that uh, I'm not, as I'm saying, I'm not a medical expert, but a blood clot, which may form. uh, elsewhere which finds its way into the brain and causes a blockage or else a burst blood vessel which may occur from say high blood pressure um, or a tumor pressing on uh, and constricting blood flow so there are those and then there is pretty much indistinguishable people who get a whack to the head so young men who uh, get punched or fall off their motorbikes, um, yeah. that sort of thing. And basically, the, the therapy is very similar, if not identical. Yeah. So in the end, the brain doesn't really uh, care how the injury happened, but it is that disruption to the brain and uh, depending on what part of the brain, the degree of disability. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's yeah. It, the brain's amazing in how it can repair itself. And I guess that was what what I learned Mm. very quickly, what are the things that are going to help repair the brain and that injury that the stroke has caused? Yeah. Let's go into that a little bit. So they, well, well, the first thing is that if you or somebody suspects they are suffering uh, any kind of stroke, don't mess around. Time is of the essence, and the first thing to do is to call an ambulance. Don't get in a car and go down to A&E, okay? Otherwise, you might 
end up in the queue. The best thing to do is call an ambulance and basically bypass those queues. Don't leave anything to chance. That's the first thing. And then you're essentially in the hands of expert medical help, hopefully. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. exactly, that's exactly what I did, right? Yeah. I followed the FAST rules, right? Check to see that your face is, is your face drooping. That's the F. Is there mm. any arm weakness? That's the A. Do you have trouble speaking? That's a speech difficulty. And then take action and, and call 111. I did all of that because I'd had a scare two years before. So I knew that. Yeah. And that was what happened. I woke up, couldn't walk properly, couldn't see in the mirror that I had my face drooping, couldn't use my arm. Next thing I did is pick up the phone and dial 111. The ambulance was there in 15 minutes. Great. I'll tell you a, a funny story, okay, when I was working for accident compensation. So anyway, my my boss, uh, he was in the bathroom. Uh, I went into the bathroom and I saw him and uh, the side of his face was drooping and he was speaking sort of like, uh, yeah. he was smiling at me, but he, he he was sort of slurring his words and I went into a panic. <laughs> I thought the guy was having a stroke. <laughs> and he, he sort of, he went along with it. He was a bit of a mischievous guy. And yeah. um, it turned out that he had just come back from the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but anyway, I've never forgotten that because I went into panic mode. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, yeah. Bell's palsy has very similar, uh, yeah. uh, superficial appearance, especially around the face drooping. Yes, it, it's so, when, you, when you can lift your arms above your head and everything, then yep. you know it's not belt. You know it's uh, it's not a stroke. Um, but now, um, if the world was perfect, here's what I'd also be doing, right? Hey. As soon as somebody has suffered a stroke, one of the things, as soon as it is practical, is to start flooding the body with antioxidants. Yeah, basically food substances that protect cells from the oxidative stress of toxins that are released during uh, whenever there's tissue damage. Yeah, the cells that survive are stressed by the toxins that are being released from the damage, plus yep. the lack of nutrients and oxygen due to the lack of blood flow. So it's really important in the ideal world, but it's impractical, is to flood the body with antioxidants. So there is actually a really good argument for all of us to have a diet that is rich in antioxidants, whether we have a stroke or not, because it's just so good for us from... Uh, so uh, what are those? What are those, Gary? In, you know, in, oh, in so. plain okay. English. <laughs> well, brightly coloured fruit and vegetables. So any plant that has colour that is in the warm spectrum of the visible light. So right. red, orange, yellow, green. Okay, right. and then you move into the blues and dego violets, which are right. the um, so the deeper the red. So think of black currant, which is probably just about the most potent of the antioxidants berries it is so dark red that it looks black think of turmeric turmeric is the most yellow of the yellow yeah. if you think of paprika it is the reddest of red it's scarlet red and in nature color denotes the degree of health and it's those warm colors red orange yellow green and as you move further over into the blue spectrum, 
you move into the less healthy or the unhealthy ones. So, okay. so, so in order so it's to a good rule of thumb. Yep. So in order to prevent, you know, to give your body the best chance to to fight off a stroke or to actually give yourself your body the chance to regenerate cells, antioxidants or foods high in antioxidants. Yes. These are things that contain vitamin C. Uh, yes. What other vitamins are we looking at here? As well, well, um, all of the vitamins, but um, we we must also not overlook the importance of the fat soluble vitamins, vitamins A, D, E, and K. And typically, as we get older, as we become weight conscious and heart healthy conscious, and so on, we are encouraged to reduce our fats and oils in our diet. And by default, for example, if you move from uh, silver top milk to yellow top milk or green top milk or blue top milk, you are by default reducing the availability of fat-soluble vitamins. And they are absolutely important, essential for neural health. There's more, like amino acids such as taurine, um, acetyl L... <laughs> Red Bull? <laughs> not Red Bull. No, 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 Red Bull's got Red... taurine in it. Oh, it's got a bit of taurine in it, along with some SHIT. <laughs> Here's the you thing, know? though. Um, the yeah. thing, one thing that I found, too, is yes. that it's a very large percentage, something yes. like around between 85 and 95% of people who have strokes yeah. have very low potassium. And well, that was the case with me. Yeah. Like, you know, um, potassium, and potassium is really tricky, right, because mm. – there's a happy medium that you that you your body will accept. It has, I don't know the correct term. You can correct me. Yeah. Is, is it millimoles or something like that? The measurement is between three point five and five point five per liter of blood. And once you go under three point five, then you're at risk of death. And once you go over five point five, you're at risk of death. There's a reason why you can't buy potassium supplements anywhere, right? You have to have them prescribed. So when mm. I was in when I when I went into the hospital, they said, Oh, we're surprised you're still alive. Why is that? Because your potassium is 1.3. Right? That's how low it was. And this is one thing that I've always struggled with since my stroke is keeping my potassium levels between 3.5 and 5.5. And you know, people will facetiously say to me, I'll just eat more bananas. Well, I don't have a banana well. boat. Right. No, I just um, don't have a banana boat because that's how many bananas yeah. I'd have to eat to keep my potassium in that level. And so I have to take these supplements. Yeah. And so yeah. I find that annoying and I haven't yet cracked that, but neither is an endocrinologist okay. or any other um, specialist. So well, let's, let me ask you. Look at? Oh, absolutely. Let, let me first of all ask you this, uh, Cam. Has yeah. anybody suggested why your potassium was low in the first place? Not a single person. Okay. I've been to every specialist known to man. Okay. Well, they don't think they know. Well, there are possibilities. Yeah. Now, first yeah. of all, everything in the universe is yin yang, black, white, hot, cold, positive, negative, male, female, liberal, conservative. You cannot have night without day. There's always balance. Yep. There's everything must be in balance and it's opposing forces. So, when you look at potassium, potassium has a variety of functions. Now, from a cardiovascular point of view, potassium is the brake. So if you think of yourself as a motor vehicle wanting to travel at 80 to 100 kilometers an hour down the highway, nice and steady, 
you have a combination of an accelerator and a brake, and they must be well serviced and in good condition, right? Yep. You don't yep. want to be going down the motorway without a brake. No. And think of potassium as being the brake for your cardiovascular system. It calms and quietens down uh, your heart. It uh, dilates and opens up blood vessels. It creates tissue uh, blood vessel flaccidity. Okay. Yep. Whereas sodium is the accelerator for your cardiovascular system. Yep. Sodium works with potassium. And when you're going down the motorway, you want to have a balance between sodium and potassium. So if there is an excess of uh, sodium relative to potassium, you may end up either going too fast or you do not have any brakes, okay, which means you're a hazard, yep. not only to yourself, but people around you. So think of also that sodium is pro-inflammatory. Potassium has the opposite effect, and you need a balance again between the two. So now there are things in your body which can, again, think of the yin yang, black white, that sort of thing. Yeah. So what acts as a uh, antagonist or a suppressor of potassium? Now it can be, for example, an excess of circulating calcium. Calcium is a direct antagonist to potassium. So if if calcium in circulation is too high, yep. then it may suppress potassium. Okay. The other is if you have an excess of copper, and that can be uh, the consequence, for example, of having had glandular fever at some stage in your life, which alters the way the liver operates. Right. Um, and the regulation of copper. So if copper goes up, potassium will tend to go down. Well, I have had glandular um, fever sometime in the past. Well, so, yes. Are you the first person to suggest that? Well, uh, it's one of the most common. You will see. Um, you, you just need just. I I started doing my doctorate on um, the use of hair tissue mineral analysis for detecting the long term consequences or effects of glandular fever. And um, I didn't complete it because um, it was going to take me too long. I was going to be an old man, uh, which I didn't <laughs> want to be. And my professor, who it turned out had had glandular fever himself, which is one reason why I was so interested in what I was doing, he said to me, Gary, you already know more than anybody else, so just go and do it. And I said, yeah, I don't need my ego to be stroked. I'll just get on with it. Now, See, so This is really interesting, though, Gary, yeah. because I get phone calls from people mm. all the time that know that I've had a stroke, know that I recovered, know all of this stuff, and they say to me, mm. oh, uncle such and such has had a stroke or my friend's had a stroke. What do you suggest? And I say the first thing to do is get the potassium checked yeah. because and every single mm. time, right, they've come back and said, wow, it was really low. I said, yep. And what they do in the hospital, and I know this because they did it to me, is they pump potassium into your arm. And I had a bag uh, of this viscous burning fluid pumped into my arm. Yeah. It, it just felt like liquid fire being, you know, it was one of the most painful things that I had to experience. But then they forget about that. Every other test you do from then on, they go, oh, look, your potassium is okay. And then six months down the track or a year down the track, because they haven't fixed the cause of the problem or they don't even know what the cause of the problem is, Hmm. then you tip over again. 
because well, your potassium has yeah. gone down, right? And yes. nobody ever see if you keep your potassium between three and a half and five and a half, your your risk of stroke is is significantly reduced. And it's I have, cannot get this through to people anywhere, you know. And it's hard. They go, oh, eat bananas. For people like me, it's just never going to get there eating bananas. Well, I, I don't. I don't think bananas are going to cut it anyway. And <laughs> no. um, you may inadvertently be giving yourself a sugar hit. And yeah. that's not necessarily that healthy over the long term. And I haven't been able to demonstrate through testing that um, eating bananas significantly uh, alters potassium retention in the body. The other thing, you know, what we need to be looking for always is asking, well, what's the root cause? And, and you keep going down and down and down until you get down to the atoms. It's quite fascinating. So one of the other things to just bear in mind with potassium is potassium and sodium are regulated by the adrenal glands. Right. So when we're looking for patterns of whether somebody is not handling stress well or under too much stress, mm. is on a head tissue mineral analysis, we will see an elevation of sodium and yeah. hopefully potassium. When sodium goes up, you want potassium to follow because they're like husband and wife or you know, well, I was saying, well, the, the better analogy is accelerator and brake because of the effect they have on the heart and circulation. So when the accelerator, you don't want to have um, the accelerator pushed to the floorboards without the brake being able to counter it so that yes. you don't end up crashing at high speed when you hit the first corner. Maybe um, I need to send you some gear. <laughs> yeah, well, we certainly can do that, and mm. it would be fascinating because um, we may pick up the effects of having had glandular fever, possibly even as a child. It was in my um, early 20s. Yeah, it's called the kissing disease, by the way, Cameron. Yeah, I wasn't kissing anybody <laughs> back then. <laughs> well, uh, look, uh, you just have to be um, having late nights, uh, drinking too much and uh, people yelling in your ear and that sort of thing to get exposed to this. And look, all of us end up getting the Epstein-Barr virus, uh, which causes glandular fever, but yeah. not yeah. all of us get the full blown symptoms of this viral infection. And yeah, uh, so and it's young people who get run down, eating poor diets, not getting adequate sleep, who are at greatest risk. The other group is uh, young boys and girls when they enter puberty. Yeah, uh, that's when they often get smashed. Now, um, okay, well, there, this is really is... interesting. I'm going to make some yeah. notes on this and we'll, well talk, talk offline about it because I, I really yeah. want to get this solved. But yeah. if I can solve it. Uh, then I'm pretty oh, sure it's going to help, you know, multitude other people who uh, have experienced strokes and that have got similar yep. potassium issues. Well, the the other factor that must be borne in mind, there's a couple here, is um, zinc intake. First of all, there is there wouldn't be a single kiwi that isn't zinc deficient. However, if you were to give somebody large doses of zinc as a supplement. Yeah. Uh, zinc, uh, again, is an antagonist of potassium. So this is all about nutrient balancing. You've got to be very careful that you yeah. don't just sort of say, you know, take, you know, you got to take zinc, you got to take this, you got to take that. So I what's a large dose all, of zinc then? What would you classify a large well, dose of zinc? No, I, well, the first thing I do, uh, Cameron, is test the person and right. determine their zinc levels and the, their levels of things like copper, calcium, uh, magnesium, and so on and so on, manganese, iron, 
etc. Um, um, selenium. You've got to know all of those, and you, you know nothing. Nothing ever works on its own. They all work synergistically and antagonistically, and uh, and that's where the testing is so important. My main role nowadays is testing. I do nutrient yeah. testing. And um, look, the reason why I'm a multiple world champion at 70 years of age is because I test myself and then I prescribe accordingly. And right. that's the way that I get, I'm not, it's not because I've got some, you know, genetic, attri- you know, attributes or anything like that. I do it because I keep myself healthy and I do it basically through testing, then prescribing. Cameron, you wouldn't run a business without a set of accounts, would you? No. Uh, you know, you, you've got to know what your profit and loss is. You've got to know what your stock is, you know, and what the turnover is. And the other thing is you've got to know what the threats are. And in the case of a human being, it's like, Cameron, have you been eating fish? Like, have you got mercury in your system from eating a, a bit too much tuna or something? Yep, now, that yep. could be, uh, you know, you've got to know all of this before you can figure out what is the root cause of why did this um, health conscious bloke wake up suffering from a stroke? Yeah, you know, I wasn't we've health got conscious to, back then, to be fair. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I am now, well, though. Well, you can see I'm grinning while I was yeah, saying Of that, course. You, know. yeah, you, was, you look was, a whole lot better than me at 70 than I do well, at 55, let me tell you. <laughs> um, well, I've done, uh, basically, I work on an investment of being 20 years ahead of disease. Now, by the way, my mother died a horrible disease from a combination of cancer plus a stroke. Okay, yeah. it was... Uh, her her children are still traumatized, even though it's many years ago. My father dropped dead on his last run, okay, from a massive stroke. But it doesn't worry me at all because what I'm doing is I'm constantly trying to identify the things that are coming at me and I take um, remedial action so that I stay 20 years ahead. See, that's, and that's it's what worked. I've. I mean, that's yeah. the the benefit, I guess, for me of the stroke is that I want yeah. to learn these things. I want to yeah. know these things. A to avoid having another stroke. Now, I've just passed the five year threshold, so yeah. this, the risk of stroke is significantly reduced now for me because I've yeah. passed that five year threshold. But yeah, so um, I want to fix the potassium. Yeah. I want to fix these things, but I want to share the information that I gather with other people, so they don't have to go through what I went through. Yes, because not Absolutely. everyone can, not everyone can do what I did either. That's the other thing, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet here, but I'm a little bit dogmatic and I'm a little bit self-centered, and so uh, I just focused on myself to get better. Now I'm not a hundred percent. But I'm a whole lot better than plenty of the other people that were in the hospital at the same time as I was. So that's why you know, talking with you, understanding mm. these nutrients, that will prevent other people getting strokes if we can get this message out there. Because prevention is a whole lot better than trying to fix what happened after the stroke. Yes. Well, let's do this in stages. One yeah. of the things that you could consider doing is doing some testing, and then we could even do a review uh, in a future program. Okay. Yeah. That could so, be quite so fascinating. I'll definitely be looking at that. Yeah. And yeah, what people uh, can look. do, so so we've covered antioxidants. People need to, yes. to look at 
getting those antioxidants, and that's how we mm. divert it into potassium. But yeah. um, look at the antioxidants. Yes. Next thing would be to look at making sure that all the other nutrients outside of antioxidants are in balance, and yes. and people should be looking at that, and, and they can do that. How can they do that? Is, is it through well, diet, or is it through well, supplements, or yeah. a combination? Yes. Yeah, so so there's this uh, the the acute stage of healing, which is more or less the first three weeks or so, where you know really all that person needs to do is to rest and they should be eating good food however the hospital system works against us on that one um first of all there is a disdain of nutritional supplementation which i think is very well justified particularly one of the things that happens when somebody suffered a major trauma such as a stroke is they suffer a loss of appetite Okay, so that's why in a hospital, even if you serve cordon bleu meals, uh, the patients will still go for the ice cream and jelly. Yeah. Okay, and that's that's because um, during the process of healing, there is a massive increase in the need for zinc, and that's zinc regulates. Because I, I went around the ward stealing the ice cream from the fridges, You're right. I found out where they were where they were well, kept on the floor and I was stealing the ice cream because they would only give me one at, one at a time and yes. I wanted more than that. And I didn't yeah. know why it was I wanted more than that, but, but I did. Well, it's it's rather interesting that um, uh, zinc regulates taste and smell and zinc is also needed acutely for tissue healing. So um, when zinc, which is already in short supply, is diverted for tissue healing, there is a loss of taste and smell. And in particular, a distortion that creates an abhorrence of basically meat, eggs, um, fried foods, barbecue, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, so that's that's a, another subject that we could touch on, is uh, the way that um, nutrients affect behavior, taste, smell, etc. But you've mentioned yep. several times now deficiencies uh, in nutrients. You've mentioned zinc. You've mentioned yep. selenium. Iodine is also deficient amongst Kiwis, isn't it? Yes. And uh, yes, and and that, that's because basically um, processed foods or foods that are grown industrially uh, tend to be depleted in these trace nutrients and also the foods in our bread for their sugar or calorie content more than their uh, trace nutrient content. And that also applies, by the way, to organic foods. They're not necessarily more nutritious, though they should be. Um, it depends on what the plant was fed. You see, right. you are what you eat, and you need to go right down to what is actually on the soil. And if um, if what is mostly placed on the soil is in nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and a bit of lime, well, guess what? That's what you're getting. Okay, but what about all the other trace nutrients that we've talked about, like selenium, iodine, zinc, uh, manganese, et cetera, et cetera? There's, there's many. The other thing is, is that it's all about balance. You see, if um, uh, one may have an adequate intake of, say, selenium or zinc, but if there is an excess of copper, or on the other hand, if somebody is taking too much vitamin C, 
and they already have low levels of copper, they're going to make things worse. And that will bring on, for example, inflammatory arthritis. So some people who are listening will know that if they take um, supplementary vitamin C, they get aching joints, Um, their knuckles will hurt. Well, that can be an indication of the uh, suppressing effect of vitamin C on zinc, sorry, on copper. And uh, so you get this complication. So the first thing always is you test, then you prescribe, because um, who says somebody needs a whole lot of vitamin C? Okay. Well, if you like I was saying, you wouldn't run a business without a set of accounts. So let's do some accounting for a person's body, then decide what's best for them. And that's how you take out the guessing. Now, um, the, the, the problem with the hospital is that the food that is served tends to be absolute crap. Okay, it's terrible. Yeah. It's got no nutrient value whatsoever. I've written a number of articles about this whole business of, uh, for example, if you think of what makes up a, a beautiful, healthy brain, the nutrients, mm. right? The, the, straight away, the simple fact that your brain is about 60% fat and oil. Yeah. If you're eating uh, fat-free ice cream and a bit of jelly, Couldn't think how are you going to build a brain? Where, where are you going to make a brain from? You know, you can't do it. So straight away, you're compromising healing. And and so that's where the hospital meals, even where they say it's healthy, you know, if you look at that little bit of the, those peas and a bit of bean and, you know, a bit of mashed potato and there might be a bit of um, steak or something, you know. Um, anything, even that, if you, anything that looks sad like that is is not going to be nut- <laughs> nutritional, right? Well, yeah, and, you know, okay, a bit of salad and that, but if you actually look at it and you say how many milligrams of, um, you know, B vitamin, you know, folate and this and that and how much B12 and how much, yeah. how many grams of protein are there, um, I'll tell you what, uh, if somebody stays in hospital for long enough, they will get malnutrition. Well, they'll they'll suffer sick, malnutrition. They? Yeah, they'll they'll get, they don't they heal. Get sicker, yeah. Yeah, they, they won't heal. And and unfortunately, because of the way that allopathic medicine operates, is that there's a drug for every condition, right? Yeah. But what we should be doing first and foremost, and um, look, our farmers and that know better, okay, is that you've, if, if you want healthy animals that are disease-resistant, then you feed them good food. You know, you, yeah. you make sure that, that, the, that the hay's good, you know, fresh. And uh, nutrient uh, nutrient dense. If you don't, you get you get poor production. Um, and the same applies to human beings. We're no different. So um, so this is where supplementation can be important. Um, and even like giving somebody a super smoothie, a whey protein smoothie with uh, nutrients. Now, when it comes to like stroke, I'd like listeners. To get into Google, Google's the best search engine for this, even if you don't like Google. Yeah. Um, go into Google and type in neuroregeneration yep. and taurine, T-A-U-R-I-N-E, for example, yep. or neuroregeneration and acetyl-L-carnitine, yep. or neuroregeneration and N-acetylcysteine, N-A-C for short. Google will do that search for you. And just have a look. You might need to go down 
helped us get past some of the uh, the propaganda, the naysaying, and so yeah, look on. Look on the third but page. Look on the third will, page. Yes, it will blow you away. Now, by the way, Taurine, how did Taurine get its name, Cameron? Come on, you you tell me. From, Come on, from, mate. From bull semen. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I haven't. Well, Taurine means bull, yes. Yep. And um, I don't know how they came up with this, but when they isolated the amino acid, I, I doubt whether they knew the health benefits of it, but what it does, it gives you the strength of a bull. <laughs> yeah. Okay, they even put it in red bull for some reason. That's right. right. Um, but what it does, it strengthens the cardiovascular system. It ha- it plays a role in neuroregeneration. Right? Eh? It's all about supplying the basic building blocks so that those amazing artisans that are going to regenerate and rebuild that brain have some good quality materials to work from. Well, that's how uh, I got onto nicotine. That's how well, I got. Because now, I, I did yes. similar Google searches, you know, neuroplasticity, because I was told by the by the neurosurgeon, yeah. oh, well, you know, you've had a stroke because your blood pressure was up and then you had a lack of neuroplasticity, which created brittleness, and and basically you've blown a pipe, you know, okay. in, your, in your brain. That's what he told me. So I Googled neuroplasticity. How do you improve neuroplasticity after a stroke? And I found... Study after study after study, you know, that was all on you know government uh, websites in the United States, like the NIH, et cetera, that talked about nicotine and how that how I said, right, this is me then. I'm into that. <laughs> so so that's how I yeah, started so, smoking um, cigars. We're gonna take a short break now and get back to this riveting discussion shortly. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And we're back with Gary Moller discussing strokes, their prevention, and how to remedy the damage of strokes. So nicotine and caffeine, by the way, have similar neuroprotective effects and may have a role in neuroregeneration. However, they're not nutrients. So let's think of a a pyramid, a a hierarchical pyramid. Yes. And at the bottom, you have your base nutrients, uh, uh, including minerals, uh, vitamins, proteins, uh, essential fatty acids, and so on. And then as you move up, you will add in more strategies. And that could include experimenting with nicotine and caffeine small doses a little bit of this a little bit of that a little bit of that it's like adding salt into the into the broth you know you just get taste you know you're not not pouring the whole thing so um if you've got a lousy diet then smoking a cigar i wouldn't recommend it for a minute Okay, I would first and foremost say you've got to clean your diet up and your lifestyle and so on. So that that would be and and identifying, for example, if there are toxins like let's take another example. Okay, Cameron, you could have bathed in an arsenic laced geothermal hot pool in Tokanu. Yep. Okay, and got a big dose of arsenic. Okay, now. Arsenic suppresses potassium. Right. Okay. Now, um, just Google um, Gary Moller 
The Poisoning of New Zealand with Arsenic. Just read it. Just read it. And you'll see um, all the evidence there of the effects of bathing in a central North Island natural geothermal hot pool. And I'm not talking about the heat exchanged pools. I'm talking about the ones that have natural water yep. that looks green. Yeah, and I've been in all of those. Is... I've been in the ones in Takano. I've been in the ones in Taupo. And here's the next yep. thing. I spent a reasonable amount of time running around and drinking water from the streams in Wairu. Okay. Um, the Central North Island is um, known as the arsenic belt yep. of New Zealand. And uh, and arsenic directly lowers potassium. So, um, Cameron, uh, you need <laughs> this is this is urgent. Okay, this is yep. for you. You need yep. to get one of those hair tissue tests done because we can pick up historic arsenic poisoning. Right. Okay. Okay. And uh, you'll see examples on my website. Just I'm just excited. Google Gary Muller arsenic. Scary. So the, oh, these well, things can be reversed, though, can't they? Yes. That the first thing we have to do is determine what's there. Like if there is arsenic, then the way that we get rid of it is we just apply exactly what I've been saying about how the universe operates. Um, yep. If there's arsenic, then we put in the mineral antagonists, yeah, uh, which then shove the arsenic out of the body. If you've had glandular fever, then your liver will not be as efficient as it could otherwise be at detoxifying these things, um, which may be perhaps the reason why perhaps arsenic might have accumulated in your body more than the person who was sharing the pool with you, yes. okay? Because we have differences in our ability to eliminate toxins. Um, some of us also tend to absorb things more. Our skin operates a little bit differently. You see, you could have soft, delicate skin, uh, um, you know, as smooth as a baby, and you'll just suck up those um, yeah, that's not uh, me. those toxins. I thought you were always thick-skinned. Yeah, exactly. At yeah. the height of so, a rhino. Um, but anyway, this, this, yeah. is real, this now, is like so fascinating. And yeah. it's the first time, I mean, for me, to hear this, that there is possibility of a solution, yeah. Uh, to because because that's the one thing that I, I I haven't been able to work out yet is how to get this well, potassium issue because it yeah you know I'll be perfectly honest it frightens me that I can't get my potassium under control and to have yeah. to spend a lifetime taking these supplements is incongruous and annoying and. You know, what if I forget? What if my potassium goes down? Because, you know, I've had a stroke. I don't want another one. I don't want to have anything even remotely like that happen again. And not having my potassium solved frightens me because it's the one thing I do. I am frightened. I'm not frightened of dying. I'm not frightened of a whole lot of things, but I'm frightened of living as a shell, you know, well, and being trapped inside a body and my brain not being able to, to do a whole lot of things. Like, and I love doing outdoor things. I love hunting. I love being in the bush. I love shooting. I love all of these things, right? And if I couldn't do those things and couldn't do what I love doing, which is you know stuff like this radio show and writing and being involved in politics because I'm trapped and you know, crippled by, by my body you know, rebelling against me, 
that frightens me. That's the one thing I'm frightened of. Well, um, Cameron, uh, you're a tough guy, and let's uh, just change the language a little bit. Um, sure. Uh, frightened's not a good word. Let's use the word concerned. All right. We'll use you're concerned. concerned. You're concerned. It's on your mind, and um, and really, it's the fear of the unknown. If uh, it's the let, let's think of this: um, a stroke is potentially your enemy, mm. and. What a good general does before he does anything is he sends out a spies. You go out yeah, and gather information. Enemy. Yeah, so so why don't we learn more about what might be going on? And you've already connected a few dots. For example, if you've you just need to bathe once in one of these pools, and off off air, you might want to tell me exactly which pool it was in, because I have actually gone and taken water samples and had them tested myself yep. Yep. so that I am able to then connect the hair tissue testing with where they bathed and also connect it with the signs and symptoms, the health issues. And Cameron, I've got, I've, you'll see in my articles, I've got at least a thousand people who have been made very unwell chronically unwell from bathing in these pools it's a yep. scandal and they don't want to do anything about it because it goes to the heart of our tourism industry and you know these beautiful healthy health-giving hot pools yeah <laughs> it's scandalous okay and yeah, i'm yeah. saying this because i've got the evidence right mm. i've got well, the evidence well, you know i mean it's it's not a secret i mean I, in my younger days, um, would go to the Takanu pools there, um, also the ones at, um, mm. at Taupo. Um, and, there, and as I said, I used to run around the hills in Waiuru, um, you know, playing mm. soldier. And I, and I knew about, like, we were always told in the army, and who knows if it was right or not, mm. if you're going to drink water from the streams, make sure it's bubbling, that it's aerating when you get water from from the streams and that. But, you know, we were running around uh, and we knew that there was arsenic uh, in the soil. I mean, I looked up the history of how Wairu ended up with all that tussock and everything else. Was they tried mm. to farm it and it didn't work. Everything just died, you know. So the only thing that lived was tussock. And that was yes, because uh, of the arsenic in the soils. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, arsenic in there and also a lack of um, like cobalt and mm. uh, a few other trace trace minerals as well. And um, so the the first thing is uh, is to test. Now, um, just getting back to, um, so what do we do with stroke rehab? The first thing, uh, so we've got to try and mitigate the secondary death of tissues. Those, yes. those little brain cells that survived, we need to cuddle them and look after them and nurture them. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, they become stressed and died. And um, and so, yeah, you've, you want to minimise that, that occurring. And that's why... You know the clot busting drugs, uh, the yep. the sucking out of the blood clot to restore circulation and yep. so on, so that you don't get any further um, death. But antioxidants are certainly yep. one of the uh, key factors. But the trouble is, once a person is in hospital, the people around them, like um, you know family and that, are essentially powerless. And yes. so you've almost got to just sort of accept. Well, you know that. Uh, during this acute stage of recovery, just provide as much care as you can and just go with the flow. Mm. Now, 
as as soon as possible, um, we should be trying to get nutrient-dense food in with all of the building blocks necessary for recovery and repair. Now, there's a few other things that uh, can help. And again, it comes down to when is it practical to start incorporating these things. Now, the first thing, and uh, listeners can again do their Google search, is look at intermittent fasting. And the use of intermittent fasting to do two things. So what you can do is you can type into Google fasting and the words stem cell production. Okay, so what fasting does, when somebody goes into a fasting state, there is the release of adult stem cells. And those little stem cells, um, they somehow find their way to the brain And instead of becoming a fireman, they get a message which says, you're going to become a little brain cell. And they somehow miraculously become a brain cell. So, you know, this whole idea of neuroplasticity, that um, uh, that the brain tissue can regenerate to a degree. When I studied anatomy, we were told, you you know, by the time you're seven, you've got all your brain cells, and then you're losing so many per minute, you know, for the rest of your life. Um, that's not true. We're constantly rebuilding and restoring, and which is a really important um, uh, principle, which you know very well, Cameron. Now, yeah, the absolutely. other part, yeah, the other part to it is the the stimulation of stem cells, and then the other is uh, is to type in fasting and yep. growth hormone okay right fasting stimulates the production of growth hormone growth hormone and stem cells combined are what drive healing okay tissue regeneration which, which, and so which, on we kind of know this too because you know yeah. you look at the uh, super athletes that have been caught doping you know and they've all been <laughs> injecting human growth hormone <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. that's how they get their bigger muscles because they're healing the tears from from all of those sorts of things. I mean, it sounds um yeah. you know uh, wrong, but that's what they were doing. They were healing the tears that were occurring from their extraneous exercise, uh, and they were healing that with you know drugs instead of the way that you're suggesting that we heal it with with yeah. doing things so, that our body <laughs> recognizes like fasting. Like sorting out our nutrients, sorting out our vitamins, sorting out our, our, our diet, and all those things. So mm. you don't need to cheat and take a shortcut. You can do all these things, like you said, it's a pyramid. Get all these things right at the base that provides a good solid base to build this high pyramid that we're going to build. And then each layer of the pyramid is less and less required of the of the things that will make a big difference. But they wouldn't make a difference if you didn't have that base correct. And it is rather interesting that when a person is seriously ill or injured, they have a loss of appetite. It's almost mm. like the body says it's time for healing. Yeah. And so during that first stage, there is a complete loss of appetite. And that, I think, is combines with um, the stimulation of uh, the release of stem cells yeah. and growth hormone. But it doesn't and, have to be. It doesn't have to be bodily injury either. It could be something hmm. traumatic, like a, a divorce or a separation or something like that. People lose their appetite, you know, when things well, like that happen. That trauma of that thing, the body says, "No, <laughs> you, don't, you don't need this." Yes, 
you need to focus on this. Um, just uh, and just on that, these things are complicated. Uh, we, yeah. you know, we don't we don't become experts in stroke um, prevention and no, recovery no. overnight. It's it's complicated. So we're covering a lot of territory here. Now, one of the common factors that you see with anybody who's suffered any kind of head trauma, whether it be a stroke or um, you know a whack to the head of some sort is we see the lingering effects of adrenal fatigue. Yeah. So on a, on a head tissue test, what we will see is a depression of the functioning of the adrenal glands. Right. Now, um, so uh, look, when, when somebody suffers any kind of head trauma, it's like a major assault on the body, okay? Mm. And the brain, the, the reptilian part of the brain says we're under attack we're under attack okay it's an incredibly yeah. terrible stress now whether it's a divorce or whether it's um you know um crises at work or you know um a, scaring a, a court, the hell out of us case. could be a court oh yeah case. yeah could all, be anything all sorts. That's stressful yeah 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 what what happens is that it activates the fight or flight um mm. response and if that goes on day after day the, the person reaches a point where the adrenal glands basically shut up shop, okay? Well, so you know and, what you're talking about, um, Gary, yeah. is exactly my situation. The three court yeah. cases, yeah. the incredible stress of all of those, uh, uh, you know, yeah. the the impact of becoming public enemy number one with Nikki Hager's book, Dirty Politics, <laughs> all of those things all piled on top of each other for years. And you know, yeah. and doing what I do nearly killed me. And well, uh, and now there, I'm finding a... out that it's all of these things. Yes, so you could say, yeah, okay, there was a stress of that, but now I'm I'm starting to understand the pathology of it, of how that well, works. Well, look, the the perfect solution to all of your stresses and woes is to go and uh, relax in a hot pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And, yeah, and, and it just adds you know, some arsenic onto that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just yeah. Well, yeah, you got to remember that arsenic used to be the poison of choice by disaffected wives, you know, for knocking off the old bastard. Yeah, yeah. but the trouble is, we can now test for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, as look, as look, an I'm aside, learning so, I'm learning so much from this conversation, yeah. and as hopefully an aside, others will um, be as well. Yeah, Farlap was uh, poisoned with arsenic. Ah. I've actually got the test results here. Right. Yeah. Yeah, who did uh, it? Radians. Well, we don't know who did it, but um, we know that it was done. Um, because here's the thing: hair keeps growing after death. So, in Farlap's case, um, the arsenic levels were measured, and then in the last hours of growth, there's this massive spike of uh, arsenic. Yeah. Right. And by the way, the same was done to Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, just three, yeah, just lacing his food with arsenic, and uh, you can see it in the lock of hair that um, was tested. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. But anyway, back to uh, stroke. What we can see is that the other thing, Cameron, is yeah. how much can be learned by having a conversation. And one of the problems medically is that the consultations or the timer is now less than 10 minutes, okay? It's a rushed 
visit. Whereas what's needed is a conversation where little clues, blues clues are are yep. often, which then allow one to start connecting dots. And then doing the appropriate testing helps to confirm and then provide direction. Okay, so you can see some dots are being connected here. Now, there's a lot of things that can be done nutritionally and bearing in mind um, the loss of appetite. But while somebody is lying, um, say, on uh, unconscious, sedated, it doesn't really matter, though. It would be lovely to be able to get some antioxidants into them, right? But when they are ready to start eating, the food needs to be nutrient-dense. And that just simply does not happen in a hospital environment at all. Zero. Okay? Yeah. And so that's where um, the family bringing in the food. Now, for example, a super smoothie. One of the best, the first meals used to be chicken soup. Yeah. Right? Homemade chicken soup. That's a good one. But also um, a whey protein smoothie with all of your essential fatty acids, um, fat-soluble vitamins, and other things to fortify it. There's a recipe on my website. Just Google Gary Moller Super Smoothie, and you'll see the sort of thing that can be Have done. Have you made it taste nice? Because like when I hear smoothie, Gary, ah. I hear hippie food, you know, spirulina. I, look, it looks sad. <laughs> it probably tastes sad. I want it to taste like vanilla ice cream. Does well, your super smoothie taste of vanilla ice cream? Uh, it can, <laughs> it can, but uh, God, uh, it's just me. You know, you know, harden but... up, mate. Harden <laughs> up. Come on. Um, um, look, I'm, I'm just going to read. This is what at four months I, I, of age. This is my Plunkett book. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when I was four years, uh, four months of age, this is what the Plunkett nurse prescribed my mother because I was failing to thrive as a baby. Yeah. Brains, grated kidney, liver, um, flaked fish, tripe with Ms. Chicken. Okay. Right. Now, yeah. you know, that's so that's what my mother was feeding me at four months of age. Right. Um now, and you're complaining about whether or not it's vanilla. Come on. <laughs> Harden up, mate. You know, the yeah. thing is. What we should be focusing on is the nutritional value of the food rather than the taste. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yes, we can make it delicious for you, Cameron. Yeah, we right. will We will make that concession. But yeah, um... I think that what we need to do, um, Gary, here is, yeah. is let's use me as an example or a yeah. test in a very public way, right, on this radio show station on the show okay and see if we can fix all of all of these things um i'm just looking at your super smooth recipe here um half a scoop of your ultra protein plus some additional whey protein black currant i like black currant so yeah we're, yep. on, we're on a winner there I, look i think i yeah. could eat i think i could eat your super smoothie every morning yes i think Instead you have the old of, recipe there by the way but that's I'm okay just on, just on your website here yeah. And um, yeah. but but anyway, every morning yes. I have now, you know, stupid things like a few supplements and some barocas and stuff like that. Yeah. You're saying if I do this instead, I'm going to get a much better result. Well, first of all, Cam, uh, test. Okay, yeah. because um, do you need that barocca or don't you? Okay, yeah. uh, that's the first thing. It's a, 
it's about balancing and and another principle in nutrition uh, is the Goldilocks zone not too much not too little just right and and that's where the testing becomes important you know uh, there was that question we all need vitamin C but how much we all need zinc but how much yeah and it's about getting it uh, and and so if you've got a whole lot of um copper for example in your body then you need a whole lot more vitamin C and a whole lot more zinc yeah okay yep. but if you've got low copper um you don't want to you you need to bring the copper up before you start pumping a whole lot of this other stuff and otherwise you make matters worse you don't get better right um, right so it's uh, going to be fascinating i'm going to oh, I think i'm going to enjoy this i'm just looking at these well, photos they look delicious i've got to say they do well, look they they just stock photos so. <laughs> You're not supposed yeah, to but, say that. You're not supposed to yeah, say no. yes. That's exactly what the the green one with the cucumber. Yeah, yeah that, that's well, not me. Now, that's not me. Uh, again, Cam. Um, look, the color is really important. Always just keep reminding yourself those warm primary colors are what Mother Nature uses to tell you that it's good for you. Okay. Mother, just yeah. a little sidetrack on it, just briefly. Mm. There's some things that I just cannot stand the taste of, and people might say I'm fussy or whatever, but there's a couple of things that I just can't stand. And is that my body saying, you don't need this? Uh, possibly, yes. So there's it's, things uh, like, um, I, look, I really don't like tomatoes, the taste of them, and cucumbers the same. I really like mm. As soon as I taste them, it's like, ugh. And the other one that is just mm. awful is used in Thai cooking a lot. Um, oh, it's gone completely out of my head now. Um, but, yeah, I can't stand that either. Um, well, yeah, so there there, there may be um, uh, childhood traumas there, but um, I'm just pulling your leg, Cam. Um, but, um, the, coriander. It's, it's, coriander. It's interesting. I cannot stand eating coriander. It's, it now, tastes, one of the, tastes like yes. tin. Well, one of the highest levels of potassium I've seen on a hair tissue test was um, in a gardener who ate loads and loads of tomatoes. Um, Tomatoes, as you probably know, along with cucumbers, are excellent sources of dietary potassium. Right. So that's rather fascinating. Mm. Um, Again, I want to do the testing. Now, it's possible that you may have low levels of potassium in your blood, yeah, in your circulation, but you may have high tissue cas- uh, potassium. We need to test you and find out. So that this will be a, an interesting exercise indeed. And then we can do okay. then we can do round three of how to deal with strokes. And yeah. Now, now, the next thing that needs to be done in stroke, and I, I this used to be my job, okay? Every yeah. morning I'd do the ward rounds. Yeah. And my job was to lift the limbs and do movement patterning. Yep. Okay? Now, yep. Uh, um, basically, movement patterning is replicating the basic movements of human movement. Yep. I know exactly and, what uh, that is. Yes, and the, the so the the first thing, if you think of when somebody suffered any kind of brain injury, yeah, they lose the ability to walk properly. Yeah, and in yeah. fact, we need to go back to the very beginning stages of um, 
uh, of uh, movement development in a baby. So what is the first thing that a baby does? You put them on their tummy yeah, and you get them to lift their head, okay? Yep. And when, of course, they lift their head up, the parents are all excited. And that's what we need to do with somebody who's suffered any kind of um, brain injury is yep. you start by putting them on their tummy and getting them to just simply use those extension muscles of the spine. That's exactly the what my physiotherapist stage, said to me at the time. You've, yep. you've, your brain's forgotten how to do this, so we, we're, you're back. Yeah, you've got to rewire it. You're back to being a baby, yep. um, but we can yes. we can shortcut that, and we do this with repetition, and we do these things. So, yeah. I mean, yes. So I'll go through those stages yep. so that listeners can, because they're just not doing it in the hospital anymore, at least not to the right degree. And yep. like you said, it's got to be done a thousand times and then a thousand times more. It's got to be just repetition, repetition, repetition. Okay. Let me tell you, they're um, not doing it at all in the hospital. I know. Uh, I, I'm. I'm That's my deeply experience. disappointed. I'm. I'm. I'm very disappointed. Okay, because sure, the majority of people they have their full recovery, but what about that ten or fifteen percent who really need this therapy? Otherwise, they end up with permanent unnecessary disabilities. Completely unnecessary now, disability. So the first thing is just simply being on the belly and doing a kind of press up, keeping the hips on the ground and trying to push up. It's sort of like a, it's a yoga, you know, um, exercise. And then the next thing is practicing rolling from your tummy onto your left, uh, over on the left-hand side onto your back, and then onto your right side, left, right, yep. left, right, rolling. Yep. That needs to be done repetitively, um, practicing yep. uh, doing that. Then the next thing from the lifting of uh, up of the head and pushing up with the hands is getting up onto one's um, knees and hands and then walking on your hands and knees on a nice soft carpet or something. We, we used to do it on a raised mat. A yep. big, a huge gymna gymnastics in that mat. Yep. Okay. And then practicing. So before you can walk, you've got to be able to crawl. Um, yes. Any parent knows this. You do not allow a baby to miss out on crawling. Okay. They've got to crawl. Otherwise, they will be a clumsy walker. Yep. And then you finally gravitate to walking. And the walking, needs to be left to right. Now, you will see this with anybody who's had any kind of serious illness or injury. When they first get out of bed, they, they walk sort of like with their hands by their side. Or you will see this in elderly people. They put their hands behind their backs. Yeah. Okay, and carry their handbag um, on their now, bum. Now, that was okay? one of the things that they taught me uh, with one of my physiotherapists. As they said, you need to learn how to walk properly. And in New Zealand, yes. in, in modern society with shoes and all of these different things, people have not learned how to walk properly. And it, it was quite an interesting experience. And they said the easiest way to do this is to do what's called Nordic walking, where you've mm. got, you know, you've got these poles right now. You'll see some usually elderly people doing Nordic walking and they've got the poles out in front of them. And that's mm. not how you do it. You have the poles behind you, which is, seems counterintuitive, but it teaches you how to walk properly where you 
basically sit back down into your pelvis. You swing your shoulders and your hips as you walk and swing your arms. And that's how we're designed to walk. And once you mm. learn how to do that properly, uh, then it, it, it dramatically improves the distance that you can walk that, because you're not being fatigued by the action of walking anymore because you're actually doing it in tune with your body. And, mm. uh, you know, I've, I've that's what I tell people who have had strokes or similar injuries with their legs. And I said, take up Nordic walking, learn how to do it properly, and it will dramatically in, increase your ability to walk better than you've ever done before. And that's the one thing that that I did. Nordic walking made a huge difference. Huge yes. Difference. So uh, I've got a photograph of my my mother. Um, well, one of the first things I gave her after it was apparent that she had suffered a mild stroke, a first stroke, mm-hmm. is I gave her some Nordic walking poles. Yeah. And uh, the the Nordic walking poles. Uh, one of the things that happens with stroke is the person, unless they're concentrating, they forget like yeah. what that um, that hemiplegic yeah. side of their limb is doing. They just forget it, and then it will drag, and the, yes. the hand will drop down by the side. Yep. Whereas when, you, when they've got the poles, yeah. Yeah, when they've got the poles, they are more likely to remember um, yes. uh, because there's there's that visual and tactile um, feedback that's that they're receiving. So Nordic Nordic walking, but uh, you've you've touched on something. Find a Nordic walking coach uh, yes. to teach you the right technique. Now another thing about walking, uh, Kim, uh, I so you spent a bit of time in the army. Yeah. Okay. Well, I spent time in the army as well. And one of the things that we learned was how to march. Yep. And um and and this uh, and marching is just so important. And 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 using the audible hup, one two three four left right left right yep. um um and so on. Um, uh, you can uh, get some headphones and put on um like Doctor Hawk, uh, yep. Doctor Hook. You know, with his yep. um blue jean song and all that sort of stuff yep. you know and yeah, and, no, no, and that's exactly right that's exactly those, what i did you yeah. know i was using the Nordic walking and i was and yeah. you know right at the start when it was really difficult and my right foot was dragging and you know mm. as i got tighter and tighter and and that's when i i actually used the you know the marching uh regimes it was left right left right left right because yes. your body doesn't know how to swing properly and and eventually yes. It's this repetition again, right? This is the thing with stroke yes. recovery. It's it's repetition, hundreds, thousands of times doing things yes. over and over and over again. I was lucky, right? I, I, I do pistol shooting. I do shotgun shooting. Uh, you get good at those things through thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions. And, and so for me, it was natural hmm. to do that, right? Um, okay. So, so Cam. <laughs> okay, so um, one of the things that I ask people when I'm doing a consultation yeah. is, have you ever owned a firearm? Yeah. Okay. No, because... I've never owned just one. <laughs> okay, righto. Okay, so you've uh, the the worst can be shotguns, by the way. But right, what's associated with that? 
right? Well, there's well, primers and there's lead. primers in the in yeah, lead and all sorts of stuff. That uh, sweet smell is the lead vapor, as yeah. the uh, the shot or the uh, the bullet is vaporizing metal as it goes out uh, down the barrel. Yep. And the other is, um, have you ever cleaned a gun? Yeah, well, you know, right? the thing is, with there's there used to be lead projectiles, okay. and then they had copper jacketed lead projectiles. There's lots of copper involved, and when you're cleaning a rifle, yep. you've you've got to get the copper out, you've got to get the lead out, and okay. you know, you've got to be really careful on all well, of that. Remember sort of what stuff. I said about copper. Oh yeah. Okay. Copper being an antagonist. Okay. So there is. Um, look, I, I've even had guys with lead poisoning from. Uh, Doing party tricks of uh, blowing uh, smoke rings um, out of the barrel from the barrel of a shotgun. Okay. Yeah. yeah now yeah. the thing is, is that we can now see potentially multiple sources of contaminants of uh, of toxins that because could of lead to these health issues. Because of my lifestyle. Because of my hobby. <laughs> and, and maybe and maybe too much ice cream. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, so um, rhythm teaching people how to walk, but they've got to crawl. They've got to practice lifting their head. And and even after that, Cam, you should still be getting on the ground and rolling. I do. You should this be on thing, your right? hands and knees. Okay. Pilates is uh, saving. He's, he's a guy. Yeah, yeah a Pilates hunting, is shooting, hunting, shooting, tough guy, right? That's me, right? And I've always Pilates. ridiculed yoga and Pilates and everything. But you know what? Since I took up Pilates, since I took up yoga – I've shot the best I've ever shot. I've improved my body out of sight by doing these things. And I really yeah. highly recommend Pilates and yoga and those sort of Pilates more than yoga because it's so repetitive. Um, Pilates yeah. doing things over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and that's it's, what has healed me, you know, doing those yeah. sorts of things. So your basics of rolling, crawling, walking. Yep. And, and you definitely have to be able to walk beautifully smoothly before you ever think of trying to run yeah okay things have to be in order now the the beauty about pilates when you think about it most movements most human movements are not linear they are diagonal so when you punch when you throw when you walk it's actually a diagonal movement across the the plane of the body yeah, there's lots of triangles and, involved. Same with yes. shooting, you know, shooting, yeah. um, swinging, and it's all yeah. angles and everything like that. No, nothing's ever straight in the human yes, body. Yes, that's right. And, and that's why um, getting on a gym machine, which does linear movements yeah. and which does not involve balance, are not really as beneficial as doing like freestanding exercise with pulleys, for example, or... Yeah. Using your own body as providing yep. the resistance. And that's why Pilates is so important yeah. because it Pilates is your own great. body. You're using pulleys. You're creating these angles and these things that occur naturally. Now, there's one other thing that is really important in stroke rehabilitation. And uh, this is countering the spasticity in the arm and the leg. It's usually one side that's Yeah, it's uh, that's been that's affected. been the hardest thing, you know, now, for me is covering that up. You know, this is when now, you exercise and all of a sudden you get these shakes and these jitters because yeah. you can't control your muscles. So one of the things that I uh, I mentioned I did my morning rounds of the wards. Yeah. And my job was to mobilize uh those paralyzed or spastic limbs. 
Now, this is where I think the hospital today is letting down patients terribly. There is a great risk during the first month or so following a stroke of developing frozen shoulder. Tell me about Um, it. Guess what I've had. Yep. What should be, what, and this is what what I learned um, in Sweden, is the use of various um, physical therapies for helping to counter the contractures that develop in the spastic limbs. Mm. And this needs to start within a week of the injury. For example, the arm that is spastic needs to be repeatedly extended. Yep. And that includes being extended overhead. Okay. Yeah, it's all Otherwise, sorts of things overhead and then out to yes. the side. Um, even like bending your wrist back, you know, like that. That's all the sort of things that I've gone through. Yes. Done all so, that to um, stretch those ligaments and stretch those muscles out. So, Kim, uh, was your right side affected? Yeah. Well, you've got an incredible um, mobility there. Just um, looking, uh, listeners can't see it, but you've got almost complete dexterity and you can get your arm above your head. Okay. Oh. Yes. Now, not being able to lift one's arm or get one's arm painlessly above one's head can be a terrible disability. Just the the effort of putting clothes on. Yep. Uh, if you can't get your arm above your head, it's a disability. It's a terrible disability. Totally. The other thing is, is that if one falls and if there are contractures, there is a risk of suffering extremely painful injuries yep. uh, by landing on that limb. You can't so, break your um, fall. There's there's a whole lot of things. Like in, in well, here's the other thing I found out you know, when I went up hmm. to I went and visited a friend of mine uh, who does traditional you know Rarotongan deep hmm. muscle massage and that when I visited him after yeah, three months, I went up there. But I went in the water in Rarotonga and I was trying to swim. Well, you can't swim. Like you literally can't swim. You can't <laughs> if you've got one arm that doesn't work, you can't even tread water. And I found this um, out and I thought, and the, yeah. the, the the and I was in the ocean and I thought I better get out of here because the, you know the, I I couldn't control anything. And in the end, mm. I just had to stay in the pool to do it because there was a real risk that I'd actually drown because I couldn't save myself. And my mates all teased me and called me a circle swimmer, you know, <laughs> because because I couldn't. Uh, but you can't actually do any sort of swimming because you you need that balance and it doesn't exist there. But you know, after a week with him beating the hell out of me, um, I you know I went up there. I couldn't lift my arm above my head, and after a week of him beating the hell out of me, I could lift my arm above my head. And that just changed everything once I could do that. So you've actually touched on another part of the therapy, and that is deep tissue massage, because uh, uh, a, a lot of the painful contractures, um, the headaches, um, the neck pain, um, the shoulder pain, uh, hip pain, and so on, can be alleviated by doing deep tissue massage. And anybody who's suffered any kind of um uh, injury resulting in spasticity or 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 weakness of um of muscles, they would benefit from a once a week deep tissue massage. Now it's a matter of finding the right person. Now you mentioned um 
Cook Island massage therapist. Well, yep. it just so happens the other side of my family, my children are, uh, yep. are Cook Islanders, and I learned massage therapy myself from uh, yep. traditional island methods. Yeah, and now, then there's my official release as well. All yes. of that sort of stuff comes Yeah, so right. there's those sorts of um, therapies. Um, uh, even finding a good Thai massage therapist can be one of the best. They, yes. they can be excellent in relieving muscle spasm. And um, just once a week is all that's required, but once a week ongoing. And as you will gather, these things do cost money because you've got to pay them, you know, to do these classes and that. But um, Cameron, it is absolutely worth the investment because 100%. there is there is that, that law of diminishing returns. Um, you can't do much in those first two or three weeks. But then that's when the therapy really needs to start ramping up, um, yep. bearing in mind um, that, um, you know, with a head injury comes poor concentration, very poor stamina. But look, anybody who's been in bed for a week, they're going to be tired and exhausted anyway, and then put a, put a head injury on top of it. And yeah, it is hard going, but that's where surrounding yourself with motivated family, um, good quality therapists and that yeah. um, really no come in. What I found, you know, early on, like when the second day and I was in hospital, there was no use having a pity party. It is what it is. And now we've got to set about uh, setting some goals. Now, you know, when yep. I first had the stroke, I thought, oh, oh, this will take me six months to fix. Well, here I am five years later. I'm still improving. I'm still getting stronger. I mean, there was a time I couldn't even hold a one kilo weight in my right hand, my fingers would just straighten out and it would drop down onto the floor, right? So mm. to go from being really strong and doing a whole lot of things to not even being able to hold a one kilo weight, which is nothing. It's two but two things of butter in my right hand. I couldn't even hold it to now being doing the things I can do now. It's just about you have to have a perseverance and a willpower to do it for yourself. And then you mm. add all these other things in that we've talked about. Yep. And slowly but surely, you will regain the use of... Well, of Cameron, have you looked into hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Well, actually, a friend of mine has just um, installed one uh, in Auckland, and he wants me to, to, to go along and do that. So that all, I guess, will be another episode of this uh, how we're going to deal with strokes. So we've covered so much today, but only a little bit. You know, there's so much that can be done, and it's so exciting. Yeah. Um, well, to do it. Let, let me just uh, say, and for listeners, um, what they can do is type into YouTube HBOT and stroke recovery and look at some of the videos. I think every hospital in New Zealand should have a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber. Yeah. And ACC should be funding HBOT. There's enough evidence now to show that it is effective. But its greatest effect is in the acute stage. Like we should take uh, within hours of somebody having a stroke, one of the things we should be doing is super saturating their bodies with oxygen yeah. under pressure. Okay. Yeah, totally. I mean... It makes sense, doesn't it? Because your brain has had an injury. It's been deprived of oxygen yep. in a particular area. 
let's get it it's kind of like life's you know doing life support when for somebody mm-hmm. when they have a heart attack or whatever get their heart yeah. pumping the reason why we get their heart pumping is to get oxygen and the reason why we do the emergency breathing for them is to get oxygen into the blood by putting them in a hyperbaric chamber it's super saturating their blood with oxygen if that's yes. all you're breathing and it's getting into those injured areas and helping those injured and anemic uh, little blood cells that are, are sitting there straight on the brain cells that are sitting there struggling, all of a sudden they get some blood with huge amounts of oxygen. They're going to grow faster and fix themselves a whole lot better, right? Well, and um, and in that acute stage, by bypassing the loss of circulation, when the pressure and the concentration is high enough, it actually completely bypasses the lack of blood flow, which therefore reduces the damage being done to those brain cells. You see, the um, it's the damage that occurs in the the minutes and then hours and even mm-hmm. days after the initial injury yeah. um, that um, we want to prevent with things like antioxidants, um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and um, and and of course um, the clot busting drugs and so on. Yeah, yeah. So Gary, I there, think there is a have... law of of diminishing returns. So you get this um, rapid resolution over the first three weeks or so, and then even five years later, Cameron, there's still maybe one percent, and and it's that little percent that can make a massive difference to one's quality of life. The other point to, to make, and I know we've got to wrap this up in a minute, mm. is that it's never ending. Even after five years, it's sort of like yep, when somebody's had, yeah, it's it's never ending. You, you just um, keep plugging away, plugging away, plugging away at not only maximizing the recovery, but those things that maximize recovery also maximize the um, protection against suffering another episode. Now, I just want to add just one other thing, sure. Cam. Lemon peel, citrus peel. Yeah. Okay. Look it up on Google. Type into Google um, citrus peel and cardiovascular disease, citrus peel stroke. Put in citrus peel and cancer. And you will see. Now, here's the thing, okay? Cameron, if it's good enough to use a citrus detergent to degrease the chain on your bicycle or the engine block of your car, then citrus peel is probably good for clearing your arteries. Yeah. Okay? So think of uh, citrus peel as being Mr. Muscle Drano for your arteries. To keep nice, clean arteries... Um, a beautiful blood flow to your brain, look at the role of citrus peel, not citrus juice, but citrus peel. Yeah. Okay? It's amazing. Just look it up and and you will see. Um, and oh. you can Google Gary Moller healthy citrus peel recipe. Okay? And you can uh, look it up for yourself. But we could actually do a whole session on citrus peel and the various health benefits associated with it. Well, you know, Gary, we've covered so much today, and we've only touched on the immediate aftermath of a stroke in Mm. recovery. I've learned a whole lot more that I wish I'd known five years ago. But that's all right, because as you say, you can keep on doing these things and get incremental changes. And that's Mm. what I've experienced. And that's what I'd say to people who are listening. 
is just because you think you've stopped improving doesn't mean you haven't stopped improving. Mm. Right? You just got to go and do it again or do more or change it up or do something else. And you will see those improvements. And, you know, I, I've, mm. I've spent five years getting to the point where I am now. And I feel that I really have a responsibility to share what I've learned with other people so that they don't have to go through mm. what I've gone through, right? And that's why, you know, I think we will continue this series. We'll have a, another couple of these where we can extend on from that. And, you know, I'm really interested in, in finding out a little bit more uh, using some of your tests mm. and things like that. So we'll, we'll take that bit offline. And then uh, we'll touch base again with the listeners and let them know what the results of those tests were. And then we'll, of course, be able to look at all of the uh, suggested therapies and treatments that you direct me towards, because I'm up for anything if it comes to improving my life. Uh, you know, it's already a whole lot better because of all the physical things that I've done. Now I need to fix the internal things. And, you know, I think we'll be able to to do a whole lot of that. So you know, I really appreciate your time today. And uh, I, as I said, I've learned so much and hopefully the listeners will have too. Well, it's a pleasure. There was only so much time available and this discussion is going to have to be continued in much more detail. I'm going to go and get those tests done and then Gary and I will look at next steps. So stay tuned for the next installment. I can't wait. And this is exciting to see if I can find out the last piece of that post-stroke puzzle that has been vexing me for so long. Tell me your thoughts on what Gary had to say by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Graham Davis is an award-winning journalist who, like me, was born in Fiji. He was deeply involved inside the Bainimarama government and then ultimately saw there needed to be change in Fiji, and so campaigned to help end that government. At first, he was an enthusiastic supporter of the new government led by Sidavini Rambuka, but he's become disillusioned with the political and constitutional developments back in our home country. To discuss Fiji's coup culture and political developments, he joins me now. Graham Davis, welcome to The Crunch. Thanks, Cam. Now, for our listeners' edification, uh, you're a Kaiviti, like me, born in Fiji. Yes, that's right. A a few years ahead of me, I might add. Um, (laughs) Not that many, old boy. (laughs) No, but, uh, you know, uh, you were brought up in Fiji uh, and then went on to become essentially a, a journalist and foreign correspondent. You've won a few awards and then you went back to Fiji to to uh, help out the Bainimarama government. Yeah, I thought it'd well, be look, a good. I thought it'd be a good yeah. idea, Graham, before we get started on what's happening now in Fiji, to do a little bit of a history 
on the coup culture and the things that we've witnessed as people who were born in Fiji and and you know the hopes and things that we might have might have ended at some point, but it looks like we're heading back towards that coup culture again. Yes. Well, look, you know, Cam, as you know, uh, Fiji gained its independence from Britain in 1970, and there were very high hopes that it would actually, you know, defy the trends in the third world to kind of go downhill, take the Zimbabwe road, and that Fiji could be an example to the world. And in fact, the visiting Pope in 1986 visited Fiji, um, Pope uh, Paul, uh, I think it was, and said Fiji you know, was was the way the world should be because there was racial harmony and economic progress and all of that. Well, all that came to an end in 1987 when Sitiveni Rambuka, who 36 years later is again the Prime Minister, mm. staged uh, staged two coups in 1987. And, of course, he did it in the name of Indigenous supremacy. You know, the, at, the, at that time, Fiji, the majority population in Fiji were the Indians who'd been brought by the British to work in the cane fields. Yep. They outnumbered the Itaque. The Itaque felt threatened, or certainly that's what Rambuka said. So as number three in the military at the time, he staged the first coup in May 1987 and then another one later in the year. And this was to you know, to assert Indigenous supremacy. Mm. Um, you know, it's quite a long story in the sense that sort of after a period of military rule, you know, Sitiveni Rambuka won an election and for several and for some years was the democratically elected leader of Fiji and sort of Fiji returned to parliamentary rule and everything was fine. What happened in, in 2000, if you'll recall, was the yes. George Spate rebellion which was against, you know, an Indian uh, uh, or Indo-Fijian elected prime minister called Mahendra Chowdhury. Yeah. Now, he was removed by Spate with the support of some elements of the military. And, of course, after a period in which this was put down and George Spate became the last person to be sentenced to death in Fiji uh, to hang by the neck, but this was subsequently sort of commuted to life imprisonment, and he, he remains in jail in Fiji. He's quite um, mad, isn't he? Well, I, you know, it's it's hard to know. I mean, he's he certainly had delusions of grandeur at the time, mm. but but he still commands a tremendous amount of support. And in fact, you know, there have been moves by the present government, um, led by Rambuka, and his attorney general, a guy called Siromi Turanga, who's a, you know a, a fanatical Christian and also an indigenous supremacist, to free George Spate. Now, the, the current military have said that that's not on, yeah, and that that would trigger an immediate coup. So the plans to release Spate that, that were being mooted earlier in the year haven't come to pass. But look, to cut a long story short, and, and I know you wanted to dwell on some of the background of this, in 2006, uh, Frank Bainimarama staged a coup in Fiji against yep. the ethno-nationalists, yeah, at that stage led by a guy called Lysanir Garase. So the military took over, they imposed their will on the country. Now, Garase was hopelessly corrupt, wasn't he? Well, I, look, you know, what is corrupt in the Fijian context? I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to point a particular finger at him because, you know, there are, there are all sorts of shenanigans that go on in the place. Suffice it to say, though, that his indigenous supremacist uh, agenda included 
uh, a thing called the Gorlingoli Bill, which would have required uh, non-Itauke or non-Indigenous people to pay to use natural resources, like to pay to go to the beach, to pay to go fishing, uh, you know, even though they were full citizens. Now, that was unacceptable to Frank Bainimarama as head of the military, and, and he staged a coup and removed Garase. Until 2014, Fiji was ruled with an iron fist by Frank Bainimarama. Yeah. In 2013, he and his attorney general, a guy called Ayas Said Kayum, produced a constitution. Now, the constitution, there were sort of, you know, superficial consultations, but essentially it was foisted on the country. And yep. for the first time, that constitution provided for a common and equal citizenry in which, you know, every vote was equal because it was weighted in favour of the Indigenous people in previous constitutions. Um, a 1990 constitution and a 1997 constitution. So, in other words, uh, Bainimarama and Kayum levelled the playing field. Yeah, they they also I mean, those are admirable admirable goals, weren't they? That well, absolutely. I, yeah, I think you supported it, didn't you? Well, well, well I As think I you did. and I both did. We we, yeah, were, we were quite vocal, saying, "Well, this is the way forward. We you can't have a country that's separated by race." And, you know, ironic. You know, given that you. You live in Australia and you've just had the voice uh, debate. And in New Zealand, we've got this ongoing co-governance and uh, treaty principles debate that's going on in New Zealand. We only need to look at Fiji on what happens if you do start having laws where race is separated in particular parts of it to see what a disaster that ends up in. I mean, City Vili Rambuka's first two coups were entirely race-based. It was about subjugating the the Indian population, the Indo-Fijian population. And then we had, you know, Baini Marama, who supposedly was going to now create this equality. And this is why we supported him, you know, because because here he was working hand-in-glove with an Indo-Fijian and saying we're all one people that included people like ourselves who yeah. sometimes are disparagingly called Kaivalangi, right? Foreigners. And yeah. um, yeah. in actual fact, we were born in Fiji. I was born in Suva. You were born uh, in Suva know, as well. In in, Suva. I think we were born in the same maternity unit. <laughs> Probably. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, we're, as, we're as much Fijian as anybody else. And, and so it was welcome to hear somebody who's Itaukai, saying we're all the same. You're born in Fiji. Well, you see, but, You're a see Fijian. this is the thing. I know, Cam, and this is the, this is, but this is the thing. Even today, a lot of Itaukai don't accept the fact that if you're born in Fiji, that that makes you a, a full citizen, a Fijian. Mm. Uh, and, in fact, one of the things that, that has caused a huge amount of upset in Fiji since, since uh, Rambuka came back to power, uh, by one vote on the floor of the parliament last mm-hmm. December, is that he endorsed the notion that Itauke refer to Fiji citizens born in Fiji as Vulangi. Now, Vulangi means visitor, yeah? It, it's now, rude. Now, well, well, well it, it, it is rude, but it's also interpreted by non-Itauke as a fundamental assault on the constitutional provision for a common and equal citizen citizenry. Yeah. And a common identity because Bainimarama made everybody Fijian. Now that was yeah. against that was that was against you know a, a huge protest by the Itake who who actually believed that this English word Fijian mm. uh, belongs to them. Yeah, 
Yeah. Now, so this has been a simmering, simmering problem. And so it's also important for the audience in New Zealand to realise this, Cam, which you already know. Yes. Since 1987, tens of thousands of Indo-Fijians and people of other races left Fiji yeah. so that the, so that the indi- Indigenous people now compromise more than 60% of the population, right? Yeah. They own 94% of the total land surface. They were never dispossessed in the way Maori or Aborigines were in Australia. Yeah. So there is no threat at whatsoever to them in terms of their position in national life, and yet they have this this kind of uh, notion that somehow you know they should have supremacy and ascendancy over the other races. And, and this is one of the great ironies, as far as I'm concerned. Ital K come and live in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, they're benefiting yep. from these work programs and everything else. They get full entitlement to everything. No one in Australia says, "Oh, listen, you know, you don't belong here. You're a visitor here." You know, they come and go. And in fact, Fiji's second biggest revenue earner, and during the pandemic, its first biggest revenue was remittances sent by Fijians working, yeah. you know, in the, the diaspora the, back yeah. home. Yeah. Exactly. We, we, so, you know. so I have, yeah. I have, you know, in, a, in extremists described Fiji as a beggar nation because it's dependent on Fijians living overseas, sending money back to, to their people. It's dependent on foreign aid and it's dependent on the tourists, you know, including New Zealanders who go to Fiji and keep the whole, the whole place afloat. And the, and the uh, United Nations who rent their soldiers. Well, exactly. Yeah. And something, I mean, something really very disturbing has happened recently in relation to this government. And that is, as you know, there was a vote at the United Nations, you know, sponsored by the Arab countries for there to be a humanitarian ceasefire um, in Gaza to enable them to get mm. sort of, you know, relief to some to the civilians in, in Gaza and to end the Israeli bombardment of Gaza. New Zealand, as you know, supported the humanitarian resolution. Australia yeah. abstained, but Fiji sided with Israel to, to support the continuation of the bombardment when it has peacekeepers, Fijian peacekeepers, in the Middle East. Now, I would have thought that that was a folly of the first order because it immediately makes them targets. Well, and, yeah. and in 2014, Fijian peace, peacekeepers were kidnapped and held hostage by a group called Al, Al Nazra, and it took um, Qatar and various other Arab countries to come to Fiji's assistance and and to pay, uh, you know, ransoms am- amounting to tens of millions of dollars for the release yeah. of these people. Now, is that are those ransoms going to be forthcoming now that Fiji has voted with Israel at the UN? Well, I mean, you know, it's tens of millions of dollars that the UN remits to Fiji for renting its soldiers. And uh, into 2014, I was actually in Israel when that happened, when they were yeah. kidnapped by Anusra. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was up on on Mount Bental in the Golan Heights and, uh, you know, when it happened. And there were actually right. some Fijian soldiers there and I was having a good old chin wag with them when the news broke and they were sort of up sticks and bugged out ready to go and get their mates back and they were all all ready to go for it so you know I I remember that uh, very very clearly um yeah in 2014 you know and it's funny because I went to Israel via uh, Suva because I yeah. interviewed Frank Bainimarama after he just won the election in 2014 yeah, uh, and so you know, I I remember that very starkly, and yeah. uh, it just shows though that there's there's something strange happening in Fiji at the moment. And that's why I wanted to to get you on my show, 
so that we could kind of like unravel it because the media here uh, has a somewhat slanted view of Fiji and the general population in New Zealand, and I imagine it's the same in Australia, the only time they think about Fiji is when they're going for their winter holidays or um, one or two of the uh, All Blacks or Wallabies team are from Fiji. Um, That's it's about the only contact. Or or when there's a coup. Or when there's a coup, right? (laughs) Now, now you know and I know that apart from the spate coup, that coups in Fiji are are somewhat circumspect as far as coups worldwide go. I mean, you know, they don't in the sense that they're they're not they don't have deaths or whatever. Yeah, they sort of like there's they block off about three blocks in, in Suva and a couple of bridges. And um, that's pretty much it. You know, life yeah. goes on around. In fact, you know, I've I've had you know mates as as you have tell us that it's actually quite good having a coup in Fiji because it solves the crime problem for a while. Well, this is a very important thing. If this was Papua New Guinea, it might be different, yeah. Because mm, Papua yeah. New Guinea, the people of Papua New Guinea, as you know, are armed to the teeth. Yeah. Um, the military in Fiji has always uh, made ensured that the military, the RFMF, is the only are the only people in Fiji who have weapons, right? Yeah. So that the police aren't armed and the civilians are aren't armed, and so that accounts for the fact that the, may account for the fact that there've been minimum casualties in, in 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 these altercations in the past. Yeah. But but you you hit on a very important point there, um, and look, I don't blame. Australian and New Zealand media, except for their relative lack of interest in the Pacific, until now, of course, which is a changing because, you know, everyone's worried about Chinese influence. Yes. Because, you know, as, as far as Fiji is concerned, I mean, you know, you were born there, I was born there, but but we'd still have to, you know, acknowledge the truth of, the, of, of Churchill saying about Russia, you know, that to, to coin that phrase, that Fiji is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, yeah? It's incredibly totally. hard to find out what, what the hell's going on there at any one time. And the coconut wireless, as it's affectionately called in Fiji, and for listeners who who think that that's an insult, that's actually what people call it in Fiji. The coconut wireless is faster than any media or electronic form uh, known to man. Uh, yes, and that's in the Pacific generally because I was I was fascinated when I went to New Caledonia that they call it you know radio a cocotier, so, so <laughs> it's a, it's a Pacific thing you know, um, yeah the drums of rumor. Uh, yeah, somebody beat, in Nandi. Course, yeah, someone in Nandi or Lambasa knows what's going on in Suva before the people in Suva know what's going on in Suva. It, well, it's that, well, that, it's well, that, that quick. That's sometimes true. But, but, of course, the other problem is, Cam, and you, you'd, you'd understand this, that every story in the retelling, you know, is modified in some way so that once it's retold sort of a dozen times, you know, it can be a very re- remote um, resemblance of the original story. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the rumour mill in Fiji, you know, turns away relentlessly. And, I mean, I've got a, a, a daily blog on politics and it's just one of the biggest things, one of the biggest challenges I have really is to separate rumour from fact. Yeah. And I have a policy that, you know, if I get something wrong that I that I correct it and I apologise, yep. fortunately that doesn't happen too often, but only because I've had, you know, international media training in which, you know, you, you generally try to make sure that what you're reporting is correct. You can never be 100% certain, but, no, but, you've also but at least got you're a, making an, an effort. Yeah? yeah, you've also got a network of people 
you know, that are in business or, you know, it's like me as well. You know, when I'm dealing with Fiji uh, or talking, I always, you know, make sure I talk to you or I talk to some of the other people that I've known that are in government or not in government or in business just to try and get a feel of what's going on. But, you know, I've found in the last few months it devilish, devilishly difficult to get any semblance or, or, or a, a view of where the direction of travel is in, in well, Fiji and the government. Well, look, there's a, there's a pretty easy explanation for that, for, for that right? Mm. Most people, even though Fiji first got more votes than anyone else in, 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 in the last election, yeah. um, and they're the majority, you know, they're the biggest bloc in the parliament, there was a huge movement for change. I mean, Bainimarama and Kayum had become increasingly dictatorial, increasing, increasingly authoritarian. They had begun to breach, you know, the very constitution that they had imposed on the country. And there was a huge sentiment for change. And Rambuka, Sitiveni Rambuka, managed, you know, uh, mm. quite cleverly, really, to persuade everybody that he, you know, he was a leopard who changed his spots. He was no longer the indigenous supremacist of 1987. He convinced me. But, but, but a man for all people. Yes, he convinced me. I, well, in fact, this was the thing. I said, I'm, I'm willing to accept the fact that he's changed. But I did uh, recommend that people vote for uh, his coalition partner, the National Federation Party led by Bim Prasad, as a means, which is a moderate party compared to, you know, um, uh, my perception certainly of City of Enderim Booker's People's Alliance. But, you know, I've, I've had to be very critical of Bim Prasad because he's allowed City of Enderim Booker in the 11 months since uh, the last election in, in, in December to pursue these policies which are not in the best interests of non-Itaque non and non-Indigenous people. And also, they are putting at risk national stability because they're doing exactly what the military in Fiji have said that they must not do, and that is that they are defying the 2013 Constitution and its provisions. Yeah. And maybe this is a good time to lead to the current thing, Cam, because it's it, you know at the end, at year's end after eleven months of these guys, there's a constitutional crisis looming and the very real prospect of a military intervention again. Well, see, this is like just before we get into that. I mean, I've I met uh, Pio Tikindudo many you know many times, had discussions with him, and he always struck me as a in, you know, a man of integrity. A straight yeah, up shooter. Good guy. Yeah. He 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 actually went to war with with Bainy Marama inside the Bainy Marama government, uh, and he was treated appallingly uh, uh, by by Bainy Marama and and particularly by the then Attorney General. Yeah. Uh, and left, and there was all sorts of rumours that he 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 had all these diseases and all these things were going on, but you know he's still there. And well, I, he, look. <laughs> I struggle to see how he can sit there uh, propping up a government uh, that appears to be acting against the best interests of every Fijian. Well, well, there is that. Um, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, leaving aside the question of motive and what have you, you know, 
you've got to remember that these people are they, they, these are my minority parties. Yeah, yes. there's a five there's a five percent threshold that you have to meet in Fiji to get any seats in the parliament at all, right? Yeah, yeah. So so the National Federation Party only just made it across the threshold for them to get three seats, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now you know the same happened with, with the, the with Sedelpa, which is the other member of the coalition. Uh, the, you know the, the triple, the, the three-legged stool they call it, the People's Alliance, the National Federation Party, and Sedelpa. Remboka gutted Sedelpa though, didn't he? When he well, he, split away yes, he, and created the People's Alliance, a lot of the people from Sedelpa went there, and they're they're essentially a rump party. Yes. But 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 they delivered government uh, yes. by the by one vote to you know the existing coalition that had been formed before the election between the People's Alliance and the National Federation Party. But, but, just, to too, point, just to return to your point, just to return to your point, the reason why these guys are enablers and appeasers is that they have they have got cabinet positions which they would otherwise not have. Yeah. Yeah. So they've been, they've been propelled into positions of power because of the uh, of the arrangements uh, that have you know that have been forged, and they need to keep the coalition in power, whatever it takes. Yeah. Now, yeah. now I've I've waged a, a big campaign against the Minister for Education in in the coalition, who beat and tortured his ex-wife, who happened to be Sitiveni Rambuka's daughter, right. Mm. To the point where Rambuka found her bloodied in the family home and only just got her to hospital in time to save her life. He is now one, he is now not only one of Rambuka's ministers in the cabinet, he's the minister for education, right? So, so mm. a domestic violence perpetrator is in charge of the futures of Fijian young people. Now, now why is that happening? Uh, yeah. And and without any protest whatsoever from the women's movement in Fiji, it's because of their desperation to keep the coalition uh, in power and stave off uh, any return by Bainimarama. The Bainimarama is not going to come back, is he? I mean, he he's out of parliament. Uh, he escaped. Well, being, he was prosecuted, but was was eventually um, wasn't convicted. No, but, but but Cam, I don't know whether you're aware, um, the illegal being a, a director of public prosecutions has appealed yeah. the acquittal and Barney Marama and Sitaveni Gilio, the, the suspended police commissioner, are back mm. in court this week again because the acting DPP has appealed their acquittals and has asked the High Court without any hearing to... to, to on the basis of his allegation that the magistrate got it wrong, to to record guilty verdicts against them. So, well, this uh, is just going to cause this, this more is, unrest and more uncertainty. I mean, the the whole uh, replacement of the director of public prosecutions was was is illegal anyway. What, well, what, what went on well, there? Well, not well, not so much that in this in a sense, and this is very important. Somebody you know and is a New Zealander, so people listening will be interested. Yeah. A New Zealander uh, called Christopher Pride, one of the most been, straight up people I've ever met. Well, yeah. that's why he was appointed in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So he, so mean, he, he was the, he's straight as an arrow. That guy. Yeah. So he was DPP for the best part of a decade yeah. um, after the election. He was photographed at a public function at the Japanese 
embassy residence talking to the ousted Attorney General Ayaz Syed Kayyum. Yeah. The, the, the new Attorney General, Siromi Turanga, ordered the acting Chief Justice, who, by the way, had, you know, replaced somebody else in that job of Chief Justice who was accused of misbehaviour. Mm. They relieved Christopher Pride of his position. They suspended him on a charge of misbehaviour for being seen in public with a member of the previous government. And seven months later, his case has not been heard by a tribunal of three judges, which the Constitution stipulates must happen. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so he's still waiting for justice to be done. I mean, this is the kind of thing that's going on. And 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 so that was one that's that's the defiance of the constitution on one level. Yes. But what this new appointment to the as acting chief justice has done is even more serious. He has appointed two individuals to senior uh, officers of state whose appointments are in violation of the constitution. One of these guys, the acting director of public prosecutions, a guy called John Rambuku, was found guilty of professional misconduct by the Legal Services Commission. And on that basis, the Constitution specifically prohibits him from holding that job. Similarly, a Supreme Court judge and Court, court of Appeal judge by the name of Alipati Kataki, he too was found uh, guilty of professional misconduct by the Legal Services Commission. Uh, that didn't stop the, the current acting Chief Justice appointing those two people. Now, this is outrageous in the sense that it is a full-blown assault on the Constitution, yeah? So what's happening is that the Fiji Law Society, and, I, and, I, and I'm telling you this, and it's, it's a breaking story in the sense that sort of no one else has got it. Exclusive it, to Reality Check Radio ex- at this point. Absolutely exclusive to, uh, to your program. The Fiji Law Society, which is the national group of lawyers um, in private practice, is preparing a court challenge to these unlawful appointments of the acting DPP and the Supreme Court judge, which will be an unprecedented showdown. Yeah, It'll pit the legal profession against the judiciary. Yep. And it's come about specifically because the acting Chief Justice, appointed by this government, has defied the Constitution and refuses to accede to the demands of the nation's lawyers that these illegal appointments be reversed. Now, there's that been a whole huge, lot of... That has huge yeah. implications, doesn't it, Graham? Because what m- most New Zealanders don't understand, and p- particularly Australians as well wouldn't understand, is that the Constitution that we're talking about here, that's essentially being abrogated by this government. Mm. A key part of that constitution is the provision of the Royal Military of Fiji to guard the constitution and act as necessary to protect the constitution. Absolutely. so, So what we are seeing here is we're actually on the cusp of another coup, aren't we? Well, look, it, it, you know, we are very close to a military intervention. Mm. Um, and if I could just refer to that clause in the Constitution that you mentioned, it's Section 1312 of the Constitution, and it says this, right? It shall be the overall responsibility of the Republic of Fiji military forces to ensure at all times the security, defence and well-being of Fiji and all Fijians. Now, that, that is a very broad statement, yeah? You can take that whichever way you want. 
But this year alone, we know that the commander of the RFMF, Major General Raw John A. Colony Y, has warned the government, the new government, at least three times in person and in writing that he expects them to obey the constitution. The RFMF has always regarded itself as the custodian uh, and guardian of the 2013 constitution. So, you know, we're entering very dangerous territory here. Now, there's a few uh, memoranda that have come out of the camp, out of the barracks, isn't there, uh, which have credibility. And you've published several of those. Uh, presumably, you've verified that these are have come out of senior officers within the army of the concerns well, that they have. I mean, this is the thing, you know, you, you talk about verification. I have done what I can to verify these. Yeah. But, the, but, but the most important thing is that nobody at a high level in the RFMF has said when I've published these things, this is wrong, Grubsheet, uh, which is the name of my, my, my yeah. Facebook page, yeah. has got this wrong. Um, so, you know, I have published these in good faith, yes. saying, saying they are purported to have emerged from the military. But there is absolutely no doubt about the fact that the commander of the RFMF has told the government that the military expects them to obey the constitution and they're not doing it. Which then leads to the possibility that the military will intercede to restore the constitution. And if that means removing the elected government, so be it. Well... There's another stage before that, and that is the, the possibility of a constitutional coup in that the government itself is very unstable. Yeah. Um, there's another piece of news which, which I can break, that there was a recent direct challenge to the prime minister when a deputation led by his deputy, a guy called Manor Kamikamida, went to him and demanded that he step down. Now, apparently, according to the information I've received, the, the NFP leader, Beerman Prasad, intervened on Rambuka's behalf and told Kamikamida and his supporters that he would take the NFP out of the coalition unless they backed off. But this restiveness in the government, right, this threat to uh, Rambuka's position is very real. Now, this is uh, what I'm about to tell you is also cr a crucial building block of what we're, where we're going with this, and that is that although the constitution stipulates that you can't have a fresh election in Fiji for 18 months uh, uh, until 18 months after, you know, the, the poll, and we're, what, 11 months out from the, from the 2022 election, a motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister can be called at any time by any MP. Now, there well, are we're, rumors... We're sort of at 12 months now, aren't we? So there's in six months' time that, that uh, facility becomes available. Yeah, but there's also the possibility that any that in the parliamentary session that begins next week, there could be a motion of no confidence in Rambuka, which would not only bring him down, but bring his cabinet down. And if Sedelpa, as the rumour mill has it, is contemplating doing a deal with Fiji first to bring down the government, this leaves open the possibility of a constitutional coup against Rambuka. Yeah, that, yeah. that it's that it's all that it's all kosher. Um, you know, to, to use the, 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 the Israeli, Israeli expression, and that the international community doesn't get upset, and the, and there's a relatively smooth transfer. But of but, power. but but you and I both know that, and and this is for our listeners' benefit. 
Yeah. Fiji First and Sedalpa have been at war since the first coup by uh, Bainu Marin. Yeah, and- but there there are there are some intriguing. This is this is the riddle wrapped in the enigma. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the, the emergence the, the, of Linda Tambua, isn't it? No, before that, it's that yeah. uh, the leader of Sedalpa, the parliamentary leader of Sedalpa, Viliami Gaboka, is the father-in-law of Ayaz Syed Kayum, yeah. who was Baini Marama's partner all through those years. Yes. See, this is Fiji. This is what happens in small countries, you know, all of these kind of, um, you know, filial relationships as well as sort of um, uh, cronyism, yeah. It's cronyism, so, nepotism, all wrapped up in in with intrigue and double dealing and backstabbing and everything else that goes with it, all around yeah. the carver bowl. I mean, it's it's specific. It's you know Byzantine behaviour writ large in the Pacific there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not just Fiji, of course. You know, the same thing happens in PNG, Solomon's, and various other places. But we are entering a period of danger because. Yes. If the military stipulation that the constitution must be adhered to is being challenged by the acting chief justice, the head of the judiciary and the alternative head of state, and he refuses to to back down not to the demands of the politicians but the country's lawyers, this increases the pressure and increases the possibility of 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 a military intervention. Now, I don't think this would be like 2006, yeah? They're not going to take power themselves. They have absolutely no taste for power themselves. So what they would probably do in, you know, in, a, in, in consultation with the head of state, who's their commander-in-chief, they could immediately appoint an interim government comprised of, you know, members of the opposition mm. and whoever else is willing to join it. And announce at the same time announce a fresh election date, saying that they had no choice but to act because of the threats to the constitution, but also because of the instability, and that the country would have another chance to sort of have a say in who governed them. Right? Yeah, I can that, just that's, imagine the, that's the other possibility. Yeah, I can just imagine the British High Commission and their staff peering over the back fence at Berkeley Crescent to see the comings and goings. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, that's well, where the RFMF strategic headquarters is, just uh, just up the road from the British High Commissioner's uh, residence. That's right. Yes, mm. yes. No, it's it's it, it's a fascinating time. And see, the thing is, uh, what's changed also is public sentiment. I mean, that w- when the new government came in, there was a wave of goodwill towards them. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because there was a sort of this was a this was a change. There were fresh faces and what have you, and and so many things had happened under the Fiji first government and under Bainimarama and Kayum that had upset everybody. Well, I'd but said to the, I said the, to Bainimarama and to Kayum um, ahead of that election, I said, "What you guys forget is that." You, this isn't your second term that you're at the end of. Yeah, you've been in power since since the point you took power at the point of a gun. It's not two terms and people are sick of you. It's it's a legacy of much longer than that. Yeah, sixteen years. Yeah, sixteen yeah. years. 16 like, years. Like Everyone 16 was fed years. up with them. Australian governments and New Zealand governments don't last that long, right? That's so right. They only lasted that long because for a good chunk of that. They were in control of all the guns, yeah. uh, and then they they had uh, one election, and then they scraped by in the second election, and well, they were at the, at the end of that. And of course, they um, they forgot, like all 
politicians, I guess, uh, and started believing their own press releases. And people, people were sick of them. And, and here's the thing, right? Again, for our listeners' benefit, I don't think I explained it properly at the start, but you were deep within the Bainimarama government as an advisor. Uh, I was. Speech writer, doing all sorts of things uh, inside the government, but you fell out with them because... Well, well, I didn't fall out with them, funnily enough. I mean, well, it, they fell out with I, you. <laughs> well, 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 no, but that happened after I'd left, yeah? Yes. And, it, yeah, and yeah. if I could just explain, this needs a little bit of context. Just give me 30 yes. seconds. Okay, so so the thing was that having been born in Fiji and being brought up with the whole multiracial ideal, it was the only way forward for Fiji to be a success as a nation. Yeah. Uh, when Bainimarama staged his coup in 2006 and the program was to level the playing field, I supported that and I publicly supported that in articles that I wrote. And so in 2012, out of the blue, I got I got approached by a Washington PR company by the name of Corvus. Uh, asking me whether I was interested in going back to Fiji to, you know, to work on their account for the Fijian government. And, of course, at the time, I mean, I, I was fronting a TV program and various other things, but it was so appealing to me to actually have the ability to sort of make a difference in the in the country of my birth, as I'm sure you understand. I, that, I that understand I took 100%. Up this, completely yeah, and I took up this thing. And I and I was, you know, I was a true believer in that. And, and in fact, you know, I, I, I mean, I I supported them all through 2014. You know, I mean, Frank Bainimarama didn't want to have the election. He wanted to have a referendum on when, whether to have an election. This is privately. Mm. And I said to him, Prime Minister, you can't do that. You've promised the, you know, the world that you're going to have an election and, and you've got to have it and, and we'll help you to win it, yeah, which, of course, yeah. we did and what have you. And so this, is, this all went on quite well. The, sec, the second election that they had in 2018 was different. By this time, I'd started to get a bit disenchanted with them but but we I still left on very good terms, um, and they thanked me for my service. And, and of course, I went from there to work on on their global on Fiji's global climate campaign. Yes. But of course, in the end, I mean, I, it just became untenable. So I did begin to criticise them uh, at first, um, you know, uh, softly, softly, and then with a big stick. And of course, this is. I mean, I'm hated by both sides in Fiji because because not only by Fiji First who they who they blame me for sort of their defeat, um, in, in you know in 2022, but also by this government. I didn't government know you were that, that powerful, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just well. Look, this is the thing you see, and 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 and, and this is important for people to realise. The mainstream media in Fiji was was repressed with you know draconian laws by Bainimarama and Kayum. But having been freed by the new coalition government, they're still, uh, you know, not telling people what's actually going on in the country. And this is this is what this is the service that I'm providing for people. Well, they're like Pavlov's dogs, aren't they? They've been cowed by their treatment uh, by successive governments over the years that they've lost the ability to question. And, and you know, I saw that when I went up there in 2014 for the first election as a New Zealand journalist, uh, got accreditation, went to a whole lot of uh, meetings, particularly at the Fiji elections office with Mohammed Sanim, and nobody would ask him any questions. And there no. was a room full of, there'd be 20, 30 journalists in there, and the only person asking him questions was me. And, and you know, I got taken aside by uh, somebody who said, uh, you know, Cam, you need to dial it back a bit. We don't want these people to <laughs> 
<laughs> we don't want these people. We don't want these people learning to ask questions. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And I thought, and I thought to myself, how is Fiji ever going to become a you know fully democratic nation if the journalists aren't even trained to hold the powerful to account? Well, the, see, and and there's another thing that's also part of this whole small nation thing. You know, the, the media proprietors in Fiji, mm. uh, you know, who employ these people, of course want to keep themselves sweet with the government in power you know yeah the, the, the you know the, the powers that be the government of the day and so you know there is nothing like the scrutiny that that is that politicians get subjected to routinely in in, in New Zealand and Australia which which is a great shame but but this is this is this is where I decided to come in I mean nobody pays me I do I'm retired and I sort of do this in my spare time. But, but of course, uh, you know, I break stories routinely that are not in the Fijian media at all. Yeah. And I mean, this went back to the time of, of, of Barney Maram and Kayu. I mean, that nobody was prepared to tell the country that both of them had left for cardiac transplant operations overseas. Yeah. Mm. It was just a sort of national secret. And yet that was, you know, I sort of told everybody about that, for instance. And and none of this stuff I'm telling you about about the Fiji Law Society court challenge to, you know, to the unlawful appointments of the of the acting DPP and the judge, the 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 recent direct challenge to the prime minister by by his own deputy, none of those story, neither of those stories are in the Fijian media. I mean, it's it's a culture in which they take the press release, ask a couple of perfunctory questions, and the government controls the narrative, which is a great shame. Well, the government controlled the narrative quite easily under under Bainimarama when they basically took away the uh, advertising from one particular media outlet and gave it all to another one. Uh, exactly, and, and they starved them of of revenue and and all those things. Now, personally, you know, this is what I'm suggesting that the New Zealand government does with our complicit media that have taken millions of dollars of bribes from the from the government here is take away their money and make them play on an even paying field. But I'm not suggesting it should go from one organization to another, like what happened in Fiji, which was a diabolical scheme that slanted the the you know the resources. Well this is uh, why I'm so I'm so down on these guys. Uh, having mm. promised to be different, having promised change having promised to not be like their predecessors, they're exactly like their predecessors. And on the issue of belonging, of you know, people of ethnicity and different religions belonging, they are much worse than Fiji First. I can't support that under any circumstances, and I don't imagine you you doing so either, because as you know, you and I are both part of a minority in Fiji, the white minority, mm. and, and this fervent ethno-nationalism, indigenous supremacy or whatever, is the antithesis of nation-building. You know what I mean? Well, it's never worked anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world that embarks on ethno-nationalism yeah. ends, ends in tears at the least, bloodshed at the worst. And I don't and want to see that, too, I don't want yeah, to see that yeah. in Fiji. I don't want to see the country of my birth brought to its knees with ethnic violence. I don't want to see that. I want to see no. Fiji a strong, vibrant democracy that can use its tourism to spread the word around the rest of the Pacific that this is the way you do things. You know, this is the way you conduct yourself. Well, precisely. Uh, you and I have exactly the same agenda in relation to that. Yeah, and, um, and, and, and because end, one of the one of the worst things, uh, you know, Cam is that. 
all of this is triggering another exodus from Fiji of the best and brightest, yeah? The government's yeah. suddenly in a panic about the brain drain, yeah? You, we know there are skill shortages in Australia and New Zealand that are being filled by people from the region, including Fiji. Yeah. And, of course, you know, why wouldn't they come to New Zealand and Australia if the majority population there is saying, we don't want you, you don't belong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And the level of vituperation, particularly on social media, is acute, yeah? I mean, I get called the, you know, the effing white, you know, C word, you know, yeah. without any shame on the part of those people who do that. No, I know. It's, I mean, it's in, in Australia, there's laws against it. I don't know about New Zealand. No, no, you can't do that in New Zealand either. But no, no. what I've, uh, you know, I've found astonishing is that level of animosity that there is. And, and you're right. I mean, it's not like where we had land confiscations in New Zealand that have led no. to decades worth of treaty settlements or the just the complete ignoring of of uh, a group of people who happened to live in Australia for tens of thousands of years before Abel Tasman and James Cook sailed over the horizon and spied a bit of land uh, yeah. you know you know just appalling um, behavior that that happened in the 1700s 1800s 90 early part of the 20th century yeah. Um, there's been none of that in Fiji. Uh, as you say, 94% of the land is controlled by Itaukai. Uh, yeah. the, 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 they've always had uh, control of the land. Control of the land should should mean control of the resources. Well, there, there, there is this sort of fortress mentality, and I mean, I can understand it. We saw it in, in South Africa, didn't we, in the, mm. in the 70s with the, with the Afrikaans, you know, the sort of large, you know, go to the lager mentality, you know, yeah. uh, defend uh, our culture at all costs. And I think that's a feature of, of, of these smaller populations around the world. But you're absolutely right. There are no examples of mono-ethnic uh, nations which have expelled their minorities, and you could you know, the whole of East Africa, Uganda, Kenya, you know, whatever. There's multiple examples. When you expel, you know, those minorities, particularly if they're educated and particularly if they're business minded, etc., it degrades your national capability. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And then when you degrade the national capability, and your economy suffers as a result, you end up with uh, and and the, the resulting instability that comes from that, and of course having multiple coups or even having the army step in, uh, even if it's to enforce new elections, it, it drives tourists away. And if you don't have tourists in Fiji, then you're left with being, like you described, a bigger nation where yeah. you're, I, I... you're you're relying on remittances or the work from the United Nations, and that's about it. Because if tourism stops to Fiji, there's yeah. a whole lot of people that are reliant on that. Now, what people don't realize is when a coup happens, these sorts of things occur. What happens to the to the Fijian or the Itaukai Fijians? Does they go back to the village? Uh, the people well, who well, suffer yeah. are actually the Indian population because they're the ones who are in these jobs that are reliant on tourism and things like that. Well, look, you know, can I just make this point? I don't think that even if there is a, another military intervention in Fiji, as long as it's not, it's nonviolent, and yeah. as long as there is an election date set and 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 a way forward, I don't think it's going to make any difference to the tourist traffic. Uh, can I just say this? Fiji is absolutely booked out for the next couple of years, according to uh, media reports. You know, in the Fijian media, 
the post-COVID travel boom in you know, which is global as you know, um, has resulted in Aussies and Kiwis going to Fiji in record numbers. Yeah, it's yeah. it's 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 just shy of a million a year for the first time. And in fact, uh, global bankers are saying that uh, Fiji is hit peak capacity in relation to the tourism industry. And unless they produce another 5,000 hotels in the next few years, they're going to have to turn people away. And, and the economic growth that they're expecting to come from, from, from the increased number of tourists visiting the country won't be realized because they just won't have the capacity to deal with that. So, so and, and the other thing that you, that you I don't need to explain to you is that, that coups have traditionally happened around Suva, which is on the other side of Viti Levu, and the west of Fiji, the western part of, of Viti Levu, which is where the main tourism resorts are, have not really ever been uh, affected by any of the previous coups. So I don't think there's any reason for people to suddenly start saying, oh, well, we won't go to we won't go to Chris. Uh, to, we can't go to Fiji yeah. uh, for Christmas, Dad, because you know there's going to be a coup there. Well, That's you, you not the case. You and I both, you and I both know that, right? But mm. but there is there are a group of people who won't go because when you've got a coup, what happens is governments around the world issue do not travel advices. As soon as you get a do not travel advice, you don't have travel insurance and those sorts of things. Now, well, for me, true. there is a risk. For, for, yeah, for me though, it, it doesn't do anything, right? Because well, it, it's where I was born. I'd go to Fiji anyway, and, and I know the security situation in a coup um, means it's a whole lot better. Um, not that yeah. it's particularly bad in in any case. I mean, there's there's parts of Auckland uh, that are far worse than uh, than Suva, and even in the worst parts of Suva. And I'm sure there's places in Sydney that you could um, say you just don't go there. Well, but, yes, yeah, you know, but but almost anywhere in Fiji and in, in Suva, you're happy to go to. It's not a problem. Um, there, are, there has been, though, an increase in, in crime and and a lot of concern in, of, of ordinary members of the community about the law and order situation. And part of that is because there's now a huge drug problem in Fiji. Yeah, it's, And it's not just marijuana growing no, there. it's methamphetamine. It's methamphetamine trade is huge. And as you know, some of that's been linked to New Zealand. So this is, you know, that's fueling a, a law and order problem. But my, my point is that if you have role models in, in government at the level of the Minister for Education who almost killed his ex-wife and the Prime Minister's daughter, what sort of message is that sending to the rest of the population about standards? Well, I mean, that, that, that's the issue, isn't it? And when you've got the illegal behaviour, uh, you know, the nepotism, uh, the cronyism going on, it leads to the general impression that things are not all um, well in Fiji, that there are serious issues, uh, which then leads to speculation that perhaps the military will step in, and that's when people don't want to invest. If you've no. got, if you want to build a business in Fiji, you look at all those sort of geopolitical situations. You think, well, should, is this a place where I want to put two million dollars, or five million dollars, or ten million dollars? Or even more, if you're going to build a resort, when there's instability, you think. Well, exactly. This is this maybe is, I mean, won't. And, and, no, and the instability continues. I mean, this is the crazy thing about all of this. All this government has to do is to operate within the parameters of the 2013 constitution, which they may not have agreed with, but they have actually sworn on the Bible to defend because it's yeah. 
it's part of the oath of office of every single public official from the president down, including all of the MPs who are now saying the Constitution's rubbish and they don't like it. And well, all why the soldiers. You, why, did you, why did you swear on the, on the Bible, you know, and, and as you know, they're sort of very, very fundamentalist Christians. Why did you swear on the Bible to uphold a document that you don't believe is valid? Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Because even yeah. all the soldiers have sworn to uphold the con- Constitution. Yes, so, absolutely. You know, yeah. there, there will come a point where the RFMF will have to do something. I don't know. I think we're rapidly. I think we're rapidly approaching that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why this clash between the country's lawyers and the judiciary is potentially the watershed moment. Yeah. Yeah. Because when it gets to that stage, it's not politicians going head to head and the military saying, well, look, you guys have got to work this out. It's the country's lawyers saying the judiciary are actually breaking the supreme law. Mm. That's very dangerous. Well, because you're losing one of those arms of a modern democracy where the judiciary is separated from the politicians, which is separated from the military. Well, it's my view that the judiciary is no longer in Fiji is no longer independent and takes its instructions from the, from the government of the day. And that is a very serious situation. Well, as you said, that's a constitutional coup. Yeah. Well, look, I, 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 I'm, you know, I've got to be careful here. Of there course. are very, there are very good judges. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying the judiciary as a whole is, is complicit in all of this, but there is one individual, the acting chief justice who is defying the constitution He's about to go head-to-head with the Fiji Law Society in relation to all of that. And his conduct since since this issue was raised where the Fiji Law Society said you need to rescind these illegal uh, uh, appointments, it's been extraordinary. I mean, last week there was an induction of new lawyers and in his speech the acting Chief Justice castigated the president of the Fiji Law Society in public. <laughs> <laughs> So they're asking for it. <laughs> they are asking for it. Yeah, and but, but for you it. know the thing is, Graham, is that every time we 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 see this, I just sit there and you know die a little bit inside that the country of my birth can't get its act together. And this is oh, not no, very difficult stuff. You know, and no. but this is why we commentate on these things. This is why we write about these things, because we've got a voice. And if nobody in Fiji will use their voice, then we need to. Well, precisely. And look, the agenda here is, the, 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 you know, the integrity of the institutions of state. You know, if the institution, mm. if people who occupy the principal institutions of state do their jobs and adhere to the rule of law, there is no reason for any of these places to have these difficulties. Yeah. But, no, but, okay. but, but, but it's essentially a group of individuals who think that the law who thinks the law doesn't apply to them, that they're above the law and that they can take it upon themselves to to either violate it or change it. And we know what happens in Fiji if you try and do that. Well, yes, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, the, the, everything that I've seen about the head of the RFMF tells me that this is a guy that has integrity uh, all his public statements are about adhering to the constitution. They, these, you would be a stupid person to ignore that. In Fiji. well, he look, 
the thing is, Raw Raw John A. Colony Wire is a person of immense integrity. Yeah, he's he's from a chiefly family. He is universally respected, and he is bending over backwards to accommodate this behaviour. That's the problem. Yeah, he's he's in a very insidious position now because his officers around him perceive that he has been weak in standing up for this and are pressuring him to 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 intervene. Now, obviously, under those circumstances, if he won't do it, um, they will. The history, the history, <laughs> exactly, and the history of of coups in in all of these countries is that it's a junior officer who does it. And, of course, in 1987, it was Siddhi Veni who carried out the coup in yep. Fiji while, while the head of the RFMF, Raju Epeli Nailati Kao, who's, who's just the immediate, uh, you know, one of the recent presidents of the country, was out of the country. And wouldn't this be the irony of ironies, Cam? Yeah. If, 36, if 36 years after he carried out the, the two coups in Fiji in 1987, Siddhi Rambuka was removed at gunpoint himself. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sitting here from afar looking at it and I'm reading what you're writing and I'm picking up what my friends are saying um, you know, inside Fiji and they're all saying the same thing. This feels like we're heading towards an intervention. Let's not use the word coup, but an intervention from the RFMF. Yeah, I don't like using the coup word, but, you know, a, a constitutional coup is that it's worked out within the constitution uh, but the government falls. A cuckoo is, uh, you know, you you will leave your offices now, or we'll we, or we'll we will shoot you. Force, or we'll well, no, they they, they never do. They that, never do they, that. They, no. they, 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 they being prodded by an automatic weapon is usually enough to get you out of your seat. <laughs> well, usually, <laughs> even someone like you can. <laughs> just usually, just a sharp bayonet will do that, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, the only time there's been actually shooting is when Spate was involved, and um, that's why I made the comment about. It. I'm not sure he's all there together in his head, um, because no. Uh, well, he he was you know, he was a megalomaniac, and you know he paid a terrible price. You know, and yet this government wants to free him. You know, this is a guy who was sentenced to death. It was commuted to life imprisonment. When you're sentenced to death, uh, you know somebody somebody uh, you know pronounces that you will hang until dead. Um, and that's subsequently commuted. There is no uh, no mechanism for you to, you know, to be released. It's for the term of your natural life, right? Exactly. But, then, that, but, but again, these people think that 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 that, that a, a well, a, you know, a, an absolute convention like that is, is is something that they don't have to take any notice of. I mean, you know, he he was out on an island somewhere, but he's now, you know, residing in Mboro Prison. Yeah, um, on, yeah, just outside Suva. Just outside Suva, but it's not a pleasant place as you drive past. You can see it's not a pleasant place, but it's certainly better than the old Suva prison in Lamy. Yeah, yeah. Mm. No, it's not a pleasant place. I mean, I know I know people who've done time in there, and yeah, you're you're in a small cell with somebody else, uh, and and it's a bucket. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, not yeah, not it's... the kind of place you and I would enjoy particularly. No, 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 we wouldn't. <laughs> look, um, yeah. Yeah, look, I'm sure we're going to have to talk to you again uh, shortly as things develop. Um, but let's just stay in touch. And uh, yes, mate. it's been Happy a real pleasure, been a real pleasure talking to you today about uh, Fiji and catching up with our our joint homeland. Really, yes. And yes. Uh, thank you, know, Cam. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure. Graham has a deep love of the country of his birth, just like me. He's also connected into every aspect of Fijian political life. We used to spend hours over a fair few gins in Suva discussing everything about the country of our birth. It's disappointing to see and hear what is going on up there. But if anybody knows, Graham knows. Don't forget to send comments on Graham's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Right, it's time for my favorite part of the show, the mailbag, where you give me your feedback, brickbats, curses, hate mail, and of course, some of you like me as well. So i got some general feedback here from Arling. I've never been interested in politics, so I've really appreciated Cam Slater, especially. He's so informative. Oh, thanks, Arling. Now, about my rant about the New Zealand media, Mike from Foxton. Bless Mike. Cam, this is uh, the seriously funniest report I've ever heard about reporters. It's so good you should do this for a job. Oh, you do. And guess what? You seem to do it very well. Keep up the awesome work. And Michelle says, Cam, I am disgusted with the rubbish that comes from legacy media. If New Zealand First does get the broadcasting portfolio, I will make the popcorn go with that show. LOL. Now about my John Banks interview. Again, Mike from Foxton. Hi again, Cam. Just listening to you with John Banks. Next time you see him, say hi from me. John used to call into my dairy in Waipu on his way to Auckland in the early 80s and buy a vanilla ice cream. Always only a single scoop, but a large single scoop. And we would often chat when he had time. Always thought he was a decent type and was no mug. Still loving the crunch. It's now my go-to political must-listen-to radio show. Anonymous says, wow, wow. I just love Banksy. He deserves a big, loud applause. Such common sense talk. Thank you, RCR. Janet says, loved listening to Cam and John Banks. It's given me a fresh confidence in politicians and much respect for Johnny's emotional intelligence, his work ethic, and humility. Long may he keep on keeping on. Anonymous writes, Banksy is 100% correct. New Zealand needs a lot of change. It needs to reverse all of Labour's bad policies, cancel woke, defund the media, and reconsider the entire school curriculum since it is contaminated with gender ideology. 
Trans people should have their own charter school. Every area of New Zealand life should be scrutinised to see if it's righteous. Sue writes in and says, great interview with John Banks. Thank you. I've read Paul Goldsmith's excellent biography of John and know about his background. A much underrated man and politician. He has true compassion and insight into New Zealand society and where it needs to go. It would be good to hear more from him as the new government progresses. And we get uh, an honor, uh, no, Simon says, FYI, Cam, I just texted this truth to News Talk ZNB whilst listening to you and Banksy as follows. I listen to Truth on RCR. John Banks is on with Cam Slater. Truthing out, you lying legacy media sycophants that suck up to the government and drug companies. Truth really hurts on you and you deserve all the shit back that you have dished out, all of you. Thanks for the great show. And Clarissa writes, Cam, I just listened to your interview with John Banks. What a wonderfully wise and principled man. Love his straight up honesty in everything he had to say. Please have him on again. Keep up the great work. Athena writes, I came, I loved your talk with Banksy. He made some great points. And yes, New Zealanders need to stand up, take accountability for their life and health, and be prepared to put their nose to the grindstone as we all do our bit to turn this around. And Tony adds, what a great Sunday morning listening to RCR with John Banks and Cam Slater. Such an entertaining and educational talk by both. And John Banks still riding a powerful motorbike, just like his character. And how we need people like both to inspire and wake us up to obtain better things in life. I went to a poet meeting in Titarangi yesterday and found another interesting group quietly getting on with things. Brilliant. And Joanne says, Hi Cam, I must say that interview you had with John Banks on the 9th of November was one of the best interviews I've heard. Bang on the money, and while I don't agree with a couple of things he said, it was a fab interview, and I've been sharing it to friend and family alike. Keep up the good work. And off Facebook, Lindley says, after his knockdown last week on men being sissies, Cam had a wobbly moment in this interview. <laughs> Brought a tear to my eye. John Banks certainly is an amazing soul, and just another who is totally misrepresented by the MSM. Wonderful interview, Cam. Jill says on Facebook as well, excellent interview. Thank you, RCR. And Linda adds on Facebook, a great interview. And now to my interview with Casey Costello. Yvonne says, hello, I listened to your interview with Casey Costello. In it, Cam talked a lot about a two-horse race between Casey and Andrew, which I found quite disappointing. There are actually lots of other people standing in the electorate, and I'd love to hear from them, particularly Alfred Naro from the New Zealand Party. Look forward to hearing some of these other voices. Well, Yvonne, Alfred has been invited on to RCR for a post-election review. And Tane knows all about that. I've got a, a bit of a long one here from Ruth from Christchurch. I really appreciate the presenters and interviews that RCR does. I used to listen to Radio New Zealand's national program, but sometime in 2020, I said enough is enough. I got sick of the slanted narrative and obfuscation, and I've never gone back. We quit watching TV over 10 years ago when our children were small and never went back, although our youngest is in his teens now. I switched to the concert program because the C word was virtually never mentioned. Then RCR started up 
and I listen most days and catch the replays. What a breath of fresh air. I particularly like a political agenda and all things related to politics. I listened to Cam talking to John Banks and Casey Costello while on my morning walk today, and I just have to say how much I enjoyed and appreciate the people they are. Cam, you've been on my radar for a long time, as your name has cropped up a lot over the last 15 or so years, especially after that scurrilous piece of toilet paper written by Nikki Hager. Bad news can end up being good publicity for the good guys. I was so heartened to know you're in the camp of truth and reality, along with Peter, Rodney, Lindsay, and Paul, names I'd heard of and discourse I'd enjoyed. Please keep up the good work, every single one of you. Jaspreet, Marie, Natalie, Don. My apologies to anyone I've missed out. Jan writes about the Cam's buddies. Hi, Cam. All your buddies were great. I agree with all of them. Keep up the great work. God bless them and all on RCR. And Sarah adds about my interview with Greg Sayers. I loved hearing Cam's interview with Greg Sayers. He is one of my local councillors, but I would never have seen the side of him without your interview. So thanks. He'll be getting my vote again next time. Love what you do. Thank you so much. And that's the mailbag for this week. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Right, that's it for The Crunch this week. I'm really enjoying talking with Gary Moller and especially excited about possibly tracking down the final piece of my stroke puzzle. We'll keep you informed on progress on that front and how we go about trying to reverse that damage. My good mate Graham Davis has provided us with an exciting scoop that the Fiji government is about to get sued by the Fiji Law Society. And this could precipitate a constitutional coup in Fiji that may unseat Sidavini Rambuka as Prime Minister. Worse, it could cause an actual coup where the RFMF steps in to protect the constitution. And if anyone knows, Graham knows. We'll keep an eye out for developments. Hopefully we won't see another coup, but hey, it's Fiji, and that's always on the cards. Still no answer from Andrew Bailey about appearing on the show. He's just a week away from the by-election, and it seems a rather strange behaviour to shun interviews. Meanwhile, I see other media have woken up to just who Casey Costello is, and they've done their own interviews with her. But remember... You heard all about her here, first on The Crunch and Reality Check Radio. And we here at Reality Check Radio are here to give you all sides of any story or issue, to discuss the meaty issues and thrash them out. And it's a job we all love doing. And sometimes we even get an exclusive and breaking story like that which Graham Davis provided. If you're using the RCR app, and you really should be, you can easily get all our replays as well as listen live. And a big thanks for the team that helps put together the show and make it all work. It's been a real pleasure having you all back again this week. I'm loving all your feedback and really enjoying talking to so many people, sharing their thoughts on politics, life, and everything in between. So a big shout out to all of you, and thank you for listening and having faith in me as we continue to explore what I think is the beautiful game of politics. Don't forget, email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio for people for me to interview, and let's make this show 
the best political show in New Zealand. Stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up next with features including money talks with my buddy Fazan Irani and Perigo's perspective with the one and only Lindsay Perigo. Looking forward to having you join me again next Thursday at 4pm for The Crunch with Cam Slater. You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4pm for more with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.